This week's episode of Astonishing Legends is brought to you by Blue Apron, Squarespace, and our supporters at Patreon.com. And we're back. Not a moment too soon. A very quick note here before we get it started. We're sold out of our coffee mugs in our store, so that's great news. But we're working on a new design, and we hope to have something new in the next few weeks. Also, there's been an ongoing request for kids' versions of our shirts. So we made an adult extra small of the blue large front logo shirt, and they are available now in the store at AstonishingLegends.com. They fit my eight-year-old great, so if you want a glow-in-the-dark skull shirt for your kid you know where to find it. Well, we've been getting a ton of emails lately. They seem to be increasing exponentially, and we love that. And we just wanted to let you know, once again, that we do read every single one of them. However, responding is a different story. <laughs> that takes a longer time, and we really want to respond with a thoughtful answer. And especially if you ask us a question or something specific about a show, it takes a little research on our end to go back and, and look. So I just wanted to personally say that we will get to them when we can, and we wanted to do more than just the pat robotic response. So anyway, thank you so much for sending those in. And we have a newsletter that a lot of people don't seem to know about. Well, Tess runs it, and it comes out whenever we post a new show. So if you'd like to sign up for it, just head on over to astonishinglegends.com slash Subscribe. Okay, let's do that thing we do. Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. When the horses heard the devil scream, they'd carry on so you think they were going to tear the barn down. You could hear the devil scream a long way off when the horses would quiet down. People may say there's nothing to it, but I know darn well there is. Amanda Sutt's 1900 eyewitness account from Lauren Coleman and Bruce Hallenbeck's book, Monsters of New Jersey, Mysterious Creatures in the Garden State. Join us tonight for the final part of our series on the Prince of the Pine Barrens, the Jersey Devil. We love to cover obscure stories on Astonishing Legends. You know, the ones you've never heard of. No, this is not one of those. Yeah. <laughs> that couldn't be more true. We want to make it clear yeah. that we've done a lot of digging on this series, and we believe in the veracity of what we're presenting to you. But a lot of people have ownership of this legend. Well, it's such a popular one, and you could say in the field of cryptids and folklore, it's kind of a sacred flying horse cow dog thing. <laughs> Goat. <laughs> Lion, well whatever well you want to put in there. Yeah. Our point is we're doing our best to be as accurate as we can, but it's become abundant clear in our research that everyone has a different opinion about the Jersey Devil and nearly all the information surrounding its origins, appearances, and connections. So what that means is that we are having to take all that information and find an average, find a median, and make it into something that's representative of the bigger picture. We aren't trying to pretend we grew up in New Jersey or that we know more than the locals. You guys know who you are, by the way. Thanks for reaching out to us on Twitter since we started this series. We're proud to have you guys listen to the show. We're just trying to tell this story in a way that hasn't been done before, the Astonishing Legends way, which means going deep. Okay, let's recap last week before we go any further. So last week we talked a lot about the origin of the myth. We started out the show with the retelling of the story, the most accepted version of the story, which had to do with Mother Leeds giving birth to that 13 yeah. child that she'd verbally cursed. Well, the <laughs> there are maybe, I would say maybe five main variations of the Mother Leeds story Folklorists apparently claim that there's about 30 main versions of this story. Now, how do you parse that out? But that's according to Lauren Coleman and Bruce Hallenbeck in their book, Monsters of New Jersey. 
so what we found here is that there's always these little variations, and I like to think that they are built on whatever the storyteller thinks is juicier. Yeah. It's like, it, it came out alive, but then suddenly sprouted horns and a forked tail and wings and murdered the midwife. Or, in one variation, murdered Mother Leeds. Or in one variation, just laughed at them, beat everybody with its bat-like wings and flew up the chimney. Yes. So all these little variations happen. However, the main thread through this is that Mother Leeds cursed the birth of her 13th child because it was so, you know, painful and uh, difficult. And also, it's really hard to feed 12 mouths back in that day on a meager subsistence level. And 13, it doesn't help the situation. So she cursed the situation, not, you know, so much that uh, she was cursing that actual baby. And, and not the situation from the Jersey Shore, yeah, who no. apparently is cursed. I think he's having tax problems. <laughs> oh, but anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yes, and that's a good point. And also, the other thing that's interesting about this is no matter how mythological you think it is or folkloric, as Forrest just said, there were some respected witnesses that encountered this thing, whatever it was, whether it was related to mother leads or not. We're going to ask you to remember that as we go through this story tonight, including but not limited to... Joseph Bonaparte, Napoleon's oh, yeah, brother. Yeah, yes, of course. He's a fancy lad, a silly dandy, you know, who <laughs> stole the crown jewels of Spain. Hey, they're laying around. Again, you know, they're just going to waste them. I might as well take them with me. Lead a lavish life in Philadelphia and then New Jersey. But he was very well respected yes. at the time. And that's another thing that makes this story so complicated for people that want to dismiss it. People always say this. Well, why is it the country bumpkin that reports the UFO or the Bigfoot or the cryptid? Why is it the local yokel making moonshine up there in the hills and he's seen something crazy? Well, of course he has. He's been sipping his own product. The people that have reported the more prominent stories are well-respected town leaders. You have a postmaster general for the area. You have a city council member. A police chief. Yeah, who claimed to have seen this. One police officer. Yes. I don't know if he's a chief. Yes, an officer. Oh, yeah. He was a senior police officer, yeah. Very well-respected guy. A summer park ranger. Yes. You have a lot of these people who are looked up to in the town, and that's, especially in the 1909 flap, and a lot of people later on will say, like, well, there was a hoax going on at that time, so it's all, you can throw all of it out the window. Well, the papers treated it seriously at the time because so many people, over a hundred, had reported seeing something strange in that two-week period, I believe in January, and and due to the snow being on the ground, there's, yes. there's a lot of tracks. So, again, it wasn't just, as it said in uh, the Mothman movie, it's not just the town speed freak, yeah. we're talking about honest church-going folks here, and... That's why people took it seriously. One, the number of people, how many had seen it. Also, two, who's reporting it? People that weren't afraid to come out and say, I, I know this sounds crazy, but this is exactly what I saw. And also, there's animals being murdered. Yes. Well, when animals killed, yeah. people are murdered. Animals are killed. Well, but, sometimes but, animals yeah, are murdered. Yeah, but some guys, you know, a whole chicken coop is gone through, or somebody attacks somebody's dog. So right. there's a lot but of livestock. But there are predators, too. But the thing is, well, the this is a rash of it. Yeah, yes. the circumstances exactly. are different. Right. This is not like one fox digging its way underneath the, the chicken coop wire. This is like a rash of livestock killings. Yes. So that always raises a little bit of a red flag. But still, we, we like to stay as impartial as we can and present all sides of it and let you make your own decision. So to that end, we come down to the real question. What is the Jersey Devil? And before we dive into that, we wanted to mention four books that we read for this series, some of them which we referred to in part one. The first two were both by James F. McCloy 
and Roy Miller Jr., the original publishing in 1976, and then there was a newer edition that came out in 98, and apparently it was reprinted again in 2016, which tells you how that book's doing. That's one of the most famous ones. Uh, it's called The Jersey Devil, and we discussed that greatly in part one, and then they did a follow-up called The Phantom of the Pines, yeah. which had some additional newer cases in it and some minor revisions. That series of book by those guys is probably the staple book and probably the most well-known, even under its different titles. We also read... Monsters of New Jersey, which we mentioned earlier, by a friend of the show, on Twitter anyway, yeah. <laughs> Lauren Coleman and his co-author Bruce G. Hallenbeck. Yeah. And that book's really cool. It's a great collection of several creatures from New Jersey, including... One of my favorites, the Hoboken Monkey Man. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a New Delhi Monkey Man. Why shouldn't we have ours? <laughs> the Big Red Eye. Oh, yeah, yeah. And the Cape May Sea Serpent. Another good one. Yeah, these are all the strange beasties of New Jersey. And they've got a series of books which are all about the states in the area, too. That's right. It's worth getting for sure. By the way, I did want to mention, some of you may have seen this on Twitter, but Lauren also has a nonprofit cryptid museum in Maine, that is amazing, and it's currently trying to raise funds in honor of his impending 70th birthday in July. If you'd like to help them out, search for Cryptozoology Museum Funding at GoFundMe. And cryptozoology has got a lot of O's in it, but it's pretty much just like it sounds. <laughs> Get it close in the Google search bar, and that word will come up. Yeah, I'm we'll sure. put a link yeah. to it in our show. Yes. The fourth book we read, which I thought was extremely fascinating, really delves into the origins of the myth and was written by a man who says the Leeds devil— or the Jersey Devil himself, was in fact an uncle of his. Ah, the devil's your uncle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's different from Bob's your uncle, right? It's along the same lines, though. Yes, <laughs> it's kind of a uh, saying. This author's name is Bill Sprouse, and his book is called The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil, or Bebop's Miscellany. Yeah, who's Bebop again? And that's from Oyster Eye Publishing, by the yeah. way. Bebop is his grandmother. Yeah, that seems like something, uh, you, you have a, a family nickname for your grandma. Uh, well, on, on my... Oh, she's the queen. Yes, yeah. my grandmother is known as the queen, and if anybody wants to know what she's like, just if you're old enough to remember B. Arthur in Maude or Golden Girls, <laughs> right. that's her personality. Yes. But yes, that's my grandmother. No, but I just I love uh, Bebop's Miscellany. Yeah, it's, Bebop's a, it's, Miscellany. Also, it's a good book. He did a lot of research on he it. He really yeah. did. He dove deep into the possible origins of the folklore at the root of what eventually blew up into this creature. And a lot of it's tongue-in-cheek, but, but the familial ancestral research that he did is rooted in a story that was told to him when he was just nine years old by his bebop or, or grandmother Leeds. Yes. And it's extensive. It was deep research. And in the, in the local investigation he did in that story, because he grew up in the area and the areas where this all started, is truly entertaining to read about. So I highly recommend his book, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil, which you're going to hear us referring to frequently. More on that in a bit. But here's the first thing that I thought about for us. When we went to do this story, I wanted to do it because we had a lot of requests for it. Everyone has heard of it, certainly. Yeah. It's pervasive I, in, a, in a popular culture, as we said on part one. Yeah, and I had to say, I didn't know a lot about it. And I felt like, initially, I thought that I understood it. I've talked about it a billion times yeah. or whatever, shut up talking about it. But I'd lived in New York for 10 years, and, yeah. and during that time... On the weekends, my wife and I would go to Bucks County, Pennsylvania. We would right. drive right through the middle of also, New Jersey. Also, that's pretty much also a lot of sightings and actually Where recent the first sightings. sightings too. Right? Yeah, this would be the western edge of the New Jersey. Pennsylvania border. Exactly. The eastern edge. That was border, a hot spot. That border is made up by the Delaware River. Right. And uh, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. But I was driving back and forth through there all the time. Yeah. And I never really got a good connection to the folklore surrounding the Jersey Devil in now, spite me, of that proximity. But let me ask you this. 
you're not from the area, but had you heard of the legend? Oh, or have, you've heard of the name, certainly. Yeah, of yeah, course, right. of course. But I, you never, what you're saying is you never really understood the specifics or, or heard a telling of the lore, right? No, yeah. I never, nobody ever told me that. Right. And I didn't really ask about it, but. Well, you're a, you're an outsider. <laughs> I am an outsider. <laughs> I guess a little bit, yeah. It's one of the things that Sproul says in his book is that he learned quickly when he was doing interviews and research to stop asking if you'd heard of it. Yeah, exactly. And in, instead ask, right. what do you know about it? You know? Right, right. Or, no. what, or what kind of personal history do you have with it? Exactly. Quickly, there's another book I want to mention because I heard an interview with him on on uh, Jim Harold, and he's a uh, Hunter Shea. He's an author. And as we mentioned previously, he's got a book called The Jersey Devil. It's fictional. It's kind of a, a spooky horror cryptid novel, but he grew up in the area and he's based a, a lot of it on the real research he's done. And what I especially appreciate is that he and his brother-in-law went deep into the Pine Barrens to talk to the Pineys, the yes. people that lived there. And asked them, and, and there were some interesting commonalities that came up. I think we mentioned this previously. He would go to book signings in the area, and people would come up and talk to him, and, and they wanted to tell him about their Jersey Devil stories, but almost as much, their Bigfoot stories. And he said he'd come to believe, it's just like, man, you run into every third person. Of course, like you said, everyone has heard of it. You don't ask them that question. You ask them, what's happened to you? Or do you know somebody that something has happened to? Because he said, out of every third person, somebody will know somebody or something's happened to them where it's like, yeah, I heard these really strange screeches out in the woods for weeks at a time and it kind of went away or whatever. You know? Well, and that's part of what frustrated me a little bit about this story, because when we first started looking into it, the details were across the board. It sounded a lot, and prior researchers had even indicated this, it sounded a lot like everybody was reporting pretty much anything that rustled in the leaves as the Jersey Devil. <laughs> well, that is part of the problem of this tale. So many things that are really not... Well, I guess if you if you went at it, you know, from a cultural anthropological level, if you were studying this phenomenon, even as a folklorist, people lump everything into it. That's, yeah. what, that's what we said the Lauren Coleman's joke was. You end up blaming the Jersey Devil for everything bad that happens. Yes. It, and, but that's not without precedent because there's one tale of the time, this would be like mid-19th century, where he was blamed for shipwrecks. Yes. And, and you know what they said was that he sat on the beach there. I yeah. think it was Barnegat Bay. Right. Yeah, I think so. Where the shipwrecks were happening all the time and would laugh at the shipwrecks. Yeah. And and sometimes was seen with the woman in white. Yes, who, there's a, right. La Llorona. Yeah, yes, well, that's a different. Well, that's Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Who sailed away. Yeah. Her husband had sailed away after a fight and she didn't right. get to reconcile and he never came back. And so she would sit on the beach with him and I guess they would just hang out and wait for ships to wreck, which yeah. I guess he would laugh at, but that must have made it awkward for her because, you know, that <laughs> well, might be a, what happened to her. I don't know what kind of conversations uh, yes, they were having. No, I, I, no, but you know what? A, a driftwood fire is lovely and, and very, uh, very romantic, <laughs> but it was happening so often they called a priest in to exercise it at one point. Yeah. Yes. Yes, it's old timey and people believed a lot of superstitious stuff back then, but they do now as well. And they got serious about it to like, we got to stop this. There's a lot of shipwrecks happening. And so blaming the Jersey Devil on everything has a long history of that precedent happening and then carrying to this day, more so, co of course, today as a joke. Yeah, but it makes it really hard to investigate for people like us or yeah. anybody else or any of these investigators that have come along before, or people who like to report or tell stories about the paranormal or cryptids. Yeah. There is a lot of stuff to wait through that is probably completely unrelated at the same time right there's something going on down at the bottom there's always a kernel there's always that grain of sand that makes the pearl that is the legend <laughs> of this story yes a lot of people maybe most even misreporting 
misidentifying some kind of weird creature or just a natural creature that they're not familiar with or a sound that that creature, a regular uh, animal makes, the yes. hoot of a large great horned owl that they make and you've never heard it before, but it's spooky and it's or weird. Or the Sandhill Crane. The sand, or exactly. even the goat. And we're going to play all those sounds for you. Oh, later. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be an old, yes, all yes. barnyard sounds. Here's the thing is like, say you take them accurately, like, yeah, you may have misidentified an animal, but the way that they're described Part of it can be, yeah, that's a great horned owl. Then it turns into a bullfrog that's somehow able to project a mile away, like something, a deep croaking, as one shriek was described, like the scratching of a phonograph record as it starts, but then it goes really high and then goes really low and guttural into like an animal growl. Like yes. A big tiger Now, growl. but they will tell you, and I will tell you this, and I don't know if I mentioned this to you, Forrest, but I did see that a sandhill crane- Yeah which is often blamed for being the Mothman. No, it's the, it's, it's the swamp gas. Which we don't gas. agree with. It's we a, don't agree with it's it. It's the swamp gas but of no, cryptids. But no, sandhill cranes are native to the area, but it Well, can, they were. They, it's, yeah. its call can be heard two and a half miles away. Something for the record. Well, it's like the explanation that's pat and like, well, that solves the mystery for all of this stuff is that it answers one-fifth of the mystery. So this is the problem that I'm seeing, and this is also stated in all the books, is that... You have people reporting weird creatures. This is not all the same creature. It's not always the horse head with the bat wings and the turkey legs, you know, with the hooves. <laughs> yeah. That's weird in itself. But people said like, well, no, no, this thing had scales or this thing had feathers or this thing had long, dark, matted hair all over it. It's or like, well, spat fire. Or, yeah, what I'm saying is like, okay, that's a different thing. You know what I'm saying? Like there's yeah. nobody, there's no rules of cryptozoology sightings here is that it's all getting lumped into this one umbrella term, the Jersey Devil, because honestly, people don't have any way of categorizing this in their description. So I don't blame them for that. The problem is, though, it does make the legend hard to track down. It's like, wait, oh, wait a second. No, this thing has scales. That's not the Jersey Devil. Well, how do you know? It's not like we have a Jersey Devil as a standard yeah. to go on. Yeah. There's no default well, it's devil. It's not like you've got the Audubon, but you're looking in a way. It doesn't match this one. Exactly. <laughs> right, right. So that's why you have a lot of variations and a lot of different descriptions all get attributed to this where it may not be appropriate. Right. And the point being that we wanted to wade through a lot of this stuff. And one of the things that we found was because the stuff in the front, a lot of the accounts are very thin. Some of them have more weight to them than others, and some of them just seem like fully made up hearsay by somebody who had a lot of Applejack. But <laughs> oh boy, I still want to try that. that I know. Was, no, that good. was a. The more we looked at this, we did feel like there was a way to figure out where this story came from, how the folklore sprouted in a very classical way from what ultimately may have been the smallest seed or grain of sand, like I said earlier. Yes. And how does that become this creature? It may actually be a visual representation of what happens when a legend is told and told and retold and retold and retold, very often repeated more by people that didn't actually see something than the people who did. And keeping in mind that some people really did see something they couldn't explain. Right. There are, of course, this dips into urban legend or the definitions of urban legend. And one of the things I always like, because I'd heard a few of these, and I'm sure everyone has, these were friends, uh, some friends from Seattle who had said, oh yeah, you know, my mother's hairdresser's cousin they had their kidneys stolen and they woke up in the bathtub full of ice. And it's like, I don't know about it. That does not sound medically possible. And then when I started to learn more about urban legends, you realize like, okay, that's one of the tells there is that it's not my mother had this happen to her. And I saw my mother at the hospital after this happened and the police came. 
It's the mother's hairdresser's cousin. You know, there's levels of separation from this. I'll bet if you go talk to that person, it's like, no, I never said that. Yeah, it's even our own friend, Marty, who's a friend of the show. He was on the Queen Mary episode. Oh, yes. Uh, as, which is one of our very earliest shows. He told us just today on text, we were talking to him about this. He was excited about this because he used to live in New Jersey. And he said, his friend Roger's older brother, Eric, and their friends once lured him down to the creek behind their house. They had dissected a Coleco handheld football game, which if you don't know what that looks like, you're not old enough <laughs> oh, to remember, they did playing one Guardians in... Of the Galaxy Guardians 2, of the Galaxy 2, Volume 2, right. when he's tracking the monster headed towards Using them. It. Yes. yes, he's tracking But that's basically what it looked like. It was just LED diodes. A very simple game, but it was a lot of fun. So they took that apart. Right, they took that apart. They took the red lights and they made them as eyes on a fake creature that they made and they put down in a pitch black area... <laughs> in the woods with running water in the creek below this tiny little shack. And he said it had some kind of speaker, maybe like a CB, and he said it scared the crap out of them. <laughs> They're little kids. <laughs> but a, these yeah. stories, you know, who yeah. knows? If some of those kids grow up and say, I saw it by the creek. And then oh, they're yeah. like, now, next thing you know, it's part of the myth and lore around it. No, that's the thing. And one of the things that uh, Hunter Shea said is that when you interview people, more people will have heard it than have seen it. And so we'll talk about hearing different sounds. So it's one of those things where it's not often seen, but I think it's fairly commonly heard, or at least sounds that are not normal animal sounds. You're going over to Marty Analysis for the fourth, right? Yes, I wouldn't miss it. It's an Independence Day tradition. And you usually bring over something you make, right? Yeah, well... Oh, I see what's happening here. You're going to a 4th of July party, and you don't know what to bring. <laughs> well, more precisely, we're going to a party, and I don't know what to make and then bring. We always end up buying a pie, and that's great and all, but it's my in-laws. Oh, and you want to impress them with your culinary skills because you've been bragging about how good your Blue Apron meals come out. No, come on, don't be rude. Yeah, I mean, that's, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Yeah. I mean, well, just bringing something you made always shows you cared enough to go to the trouble rather than just buying something, but it has to be good. No I mean? I certainly do, Vern. And Blue Apron's going to help you out here, too. I'm not bringing over a Blue Apron dinner. <laughs> now, of course, you're not going to bring over dinners, but you did see those extra recipe cards in your latest Blue Apron deliveries, right? Oh, yeah. That's another great bonus with Blue Apron. They send you extra recipes for some really great side dishes. But you know what? I always put those in my recipe binder for a special occasion. Well, this is it, buddy. It's also exactly what I'm going to be doing. In fact, I may bring over more than one. Just listen to some of the choices on my bonus recipe cards. Spring Pharaoh salad, saffron panna cotta, cast iron cornbread. Wow, that all sounds really good. And the cornbread would be a good excuse to get out my new cast iron skillet. And I don't have to worry if it's going to come out okay, because there's just something about Blue Apron recipes that makes every dish a home run. Well, not only that, you can feel good about the food you're serving, because the seafood is sustainably sourced, the beef, chicken, and pork are responsibly raised, and the produce is regeneratively farmed. Check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com astonishing. You will love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com astonishing. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. This is Maureen Blasky. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Let's get back to the show. For whatever I felt about a certain kind of thinness to the meat on the bone of this story, once we started looking into it, and I was just like, wait, this is literally every report that ever came in for 200 years, everyone is saying it's the Jersey Devil. 
Right? Well, it's like a squirrel falling yeah. out of a tree. So I was a little concerned. But then the fascinating thing that I found was that when you really got into the history of the area, yeah. there was this whole cornucopia, a, uh, a Pandora's box, if you right. will, that was so fascinating. And again, having lived up in that region for 10 years, I couldn't believe I didn't know any of this. I didn't know any of it. I blame you, high school history teachers. <laughs> well, no, they're not going to no, teach you. About, you. Yeah. I'm kidding. I had great <laughs> why teachers. Why would they be teaching you about this? Why would I say that? No, because, well, where we're going, this is stuff that you should yeah. know, or maybe I should have learned it in college. Mm, well, if you're from the area. I need area, to get on the Great Courses Plus, honestly, and check this stuff out, because there's always a surrounding context, and it may not be what you originally thought. Again, that's kind of the fun. And so when you take a look at it, it's like, okay, it's a flapping bat goat horse cow dog thing you know it's flying <laughs> around terrorizing people well there were real reports it's not like those that's are true, all but you know what? it never stories. did it never actually attacked anyone that's what i was going to say unlike spring hill jack and well that's a yeah um, that was a know. well it's not jack the ripper didn't slash anybody up i mean even spring hill jack didn't yeah. you know, give you no, the, but he shot the, fire the, in your face from yeah, that was unpleasant. Magic yeah, that was unpleasant. You passed out, and I'm sure it was sulfurous, and yeah. and uh, and he glove slapped people in a comical way. Especially, I said that's the, your favorite uh, thing. <laughs> the, well, the soldier. Said it three times. <laughs> I know. That, well, the, no, the, you know the soldiers at Buckingham Palace. You got to stand stiff, and then this guy bounds up to you, bam, bam, and then runs off. And, and uh, it's comical. There's a sense of humor. You don't really see this with this character. This one seems to be very animalistic in its approach. Like it's just kind of a strange animal. But like you said. Is there's so many varying reports of what people have seen that it all gets lumped into it. And it's just like, well, is that it? There's a thousand different, like, well, this one had ram's horns. Well, this one had duck's feet. And it's like, ah, okay, they're all weird. You know yes. what I'm saying? And, so, and they're all varied. To the point of the horns, we did have one listener who said, just so you know, just to be absolutely clear, the great horned owl does not have horns. No. I don't know. I never <laughs> thought that it did. <laughs> I don't know if I no. said that. But, no, I, we didn't want to intimate that. But it does have its feathers look No, those like are horns. feathers. That's they why look it's like called horns. that, yes. Yeah. But yeah. of course they don't. That it's would even be cool. mentioned... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Look, you know what? Those razor sharp talons are enough. Yeah. There are several cultural and anthropological and uh, folkloric things that are going on here. And underneath, you peel away all the layers that people like conveniently slap on there to make sense of it. Maybe there's something very unexplainable going on here. Well, and let's talk about that because when you get at the history of New Jersey, you really start to see the possibilities for the making of this story. So we're about to get into a little bit of a history lesson here. So if you're sitting out by the fire, having a glass of wine, or in your house, and uh, not driving, do not drive. No, but you're looking at the tree line yes. and wondering what's lurking looking beyond at the, tree the shadows. Line. You might want to grab a little pad and paper because there's going to be some history here, but we're not going to quiz you on it, so don't worry about oh, it. Oh, no, no. And this is Scott history. So yeah, it's, this is, yeah, get <laughs> it's very ready. light. Get yeah. ready. First of all, I wanted to let everyone know, in case you didn't know, including you native New Jerseyans, and maybe you did. Maybe this is common knowledge in Jersey. I didn't know about it. New Jersey was originally to be named Nova Caesarea, or New Jersey, that was the other choice, by order of James, the Duke of York, when King Charles, his brother, took it, and that's right, they just took it, from the Dutch, who had settled it and had established it. King Charles took it from them and gave it to James, and James sailed over with some folks, and they didn't even put up a fight, and everything was fine. There was a peaceful transition. Hmm. James had wanted it named for the birthplace of one of the two gentlemen that he gave it to, which was the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel. So it would have been New Jersey, and you see that a lot with some of the early names in New England. When, mm -hmm. when New everything... York? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all... Yes, that's what the reference was. Yeah. That... Unless it was French. So there's a lot of French-influenced names, 
And when the settlers got over here, the colonists, it's like they took a lot of the English names and they blended it with the Native American names that were already here. Yes, And that's then, of true. course, anglicized them. Yes. Now, people are not sure that Jersey and Caesar or Caesarea are connected, but this is interesting. There's reason to believe, I guess, that the Isle of Jersey in the English Channel, which is the largest of the Channel Islands, was actually named for Caesar in Roman times, although there is limited proof of a Roman presence that has been found on that island. Nevertheless, considering that Caesarea would have been pronounced would have been pronounced Cesare in Italian, and if you extend that to Caesarea, Cesarea, you could see how it might have been anglicized to Jersey, although no one is apparently certain this is what happened. By the way, thank you to the website westjersey.org for pointing all this out, but I thought it was really interesting because you do wonder where the word Jersey comes from, even though it wasn't originated in North America, it was originated in the island on the English Channel, but Jersey in itself possibly being an anglicized version of the word Caesar, I thought was pretty fascinating. Again, as we said, uh, even in our Great Courses Plus spots there, that obviously there's a Roman influence when they when they took it over yes. and uh, sticks to this day. So it goes way back, let's say. Yeah. Yes, it does. And it, so the bottom line is the Dutch had it first. King Charles II appropriated it, handed it over to his brother James, the Duke of York, who would become the next king ultimately. And James gave it to a couple of crown favorites. This is all going to be important in the long run. Trust and me. on the test. Yes, on the test. That's not happening. Oh. These crown favorites were loyalists named George Carteret and John Berkeley. Now, Berkeley, according to Bill Sprouse's book, which was a major source of research for this episode, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil, Berkeley sold his stake to a couple of Quakers named John Finwick and Edward Billinge for a thousand pounds. Apparently, these two guys were total frauds. And the three guys who were trustees for Billinge took it over. Now, here you're going to hear a name that you recognize. Of these three guys, we had Gawain Lowry, Nicholas Lucas, and William Penn. Hmm. Now, the thing about this is Penn had a vision. He wanted to create a perfect colony. What you have to remember is that the Quakers, which is what he was, had fled religious persecution in England. And he wanted to make a place where all of them were welcome. He opposed war completely and even the idea of forming a militia. He had a vision for a utopian colony, and this idea became known in New Jersey's neighboring state of Pennsylvania as the Holy Experiment. Now, the other thing about this is that George Carteret, who was now several partners down the road from what he originally thought he was doing, was not agreeing with Penn and his Quaker buddies about how things should be run. So Carteret proposed that New Jersey be divided into two regions, East and West Jersey. There was a line drawn by a surveyor, a prominent Quaker named George Keith. Keith was well acquainted with William Penn and the other men involved in the concept of dividing the state. Now you're gonna remember George Keith is gonna be super important in a minute. West Jersey was specifically designated as a Quaker-friendly province. The dividing line ran diagonally through the middle of the state, kind of like a, a backslash. Or any diagonal line. Yeah, yeah. but it looks like a backslash, <laughs> honestly. Okay, it looks gotcha. like a backslash in the middle of Jersey. Yes, no, I hear you. So the, <laughs> the west side of Jersey was supposed to be this place where all the Quakers were welcome. There's a reason for that, which I'm going to get to here in a second. Mm. What I wanted to go back and say about William Penn was that he was a very principled and devout Quaker man. He had actually spent time in the Tower of London for his practices, which he believed very firmly in. And when he got out, he went right back to 
standing by his principles. He was not the kind of guy to back down about things. Well, and, like and, the Covenanters. Yeah, exactly. You know, people were very uh, steadfast with their beliefs and they were willing to uh, endure a lot of uh, discomfort and hardship. Yes, but he was also connected because his dad and King Charles II knew each other. And in fact, King Charles II owed him a great deal of money. So that's going to be pertinent in a minute. But William Penn actually got to the point where he was like, you know, things aren't working here in England. I've got an idea. What if I take a bunch of Quakers, or most of them, and we all go to America? We'll go over there. We'll get out of your hair. Maybe you could give us a little land, and I can get them away from persecution. It eliminates a local problem for you. It's a win-win situation. And Charles II agrees to that and grants them the land in the U.S. So that's how they got over here in the first place. But William Penn tripped into that deal with the East and West Jersey thing when the other guys fell through. They couldn't figure out really what to do with it because not everyone is suited to, I guess, when someone gives you an entire state. <laughs> well, what do you mean? Like that? Well, I'm just saying, yeah. I, I look at some of these deals and I'm just like, how could you blow this? I mean, it's like you have this huge chunk of land. You're like, I'm yeah. not interested in it. I'll tell you what, I'll sell it for a thousand pounds. Oh, you know? what do you mean? Oh, you're saying that they got ripped off or somebody's not making no, enough they ripped money? Them, no, no. What I'm saying is yeah. the guys who sold it yeah. to the fraudulent people who right. then, and then Penn wound up taking it over or part of it. Yeah, over. right, right. Why did they sell it? Why would you sell a state that a king gave you? How delusional do you have to be to sell a, oh. a giant chunk of land yeah. that a king gave you? Now I know a thousand pounds was a lot of money back then. No, but still. That's a, yeah, actually it was a very large amount of money. Also, you have to realize that when people see that our concept of land now is a lot different than it was then. Then it's it's vast. They didn't know how far it went on. Yeah. In fact, it, you know, it wasn't until uh, 1802, 1803, Lewis and Clark actually went and looked at it. Yeah. They just, it just went on forever. It's like, we got plenty of this. Also, this West, Southwest New Jersey, eh, seems kind of thin here. It doesn't seem like very good soil, very sandy, sugar sandy. Yeah. And a little bit swampy. And it's really humid in the summers. So I can understand, just make the money now. It's like selling the island of Manhattan. This happens a lot, is what I'm saying, early on. Yeah. And then you look back on it, and it's yeah. just like, man, if I can go back in time, I'd buy up a mile on either side of Wilshire Boulevard back when it was orange groves for yeah. miles all the way to the sea. Um, and then it would know. benefit my great-grandkids, because that's how long you have to wait. <laughs> no, no, I would go. Like I would then get back in the DeLorean and come back in time, and then, yeah. and then just go to the bank, like, yeah, where's that check? I invested all this money, and I'm due a lot of rent money. Yeah. People do give up uh, large chunks, and they don't realize it at the time, but what it takes then is like what, what you were saying with William Penn is having a vision. It's like, I can turn this into something. Well, Charles II really hooked him up, because Charles effectively made Penn the largest landowner in the world, not too long after that at the time, when he granted him a huge chunk of land west of New Jersey and north of Maryland, which belonged to Lord Baltimore. Mm. He granted him 45,000 square miles. Yeah. Now, Penn initially wanted to name it New Wales. Everything's new again. But then <laughs> he changed funny. it to Sylvania, which is Latin for woods. Yeah, woodsy. Then King Charles II renamed it Pennsylvania yeah. or Penn's Woods. Well, that makes sense. Yes, in, in honor of William Penn's dad, whom he, as we said, had a relationship with and, in fact, owed a great deal of money, which is how ah. Penn got the charter in the first place. 
even though the Duke of York actually already owned that land. So, oh, I see. Yeah, so it's oh. just, oh, you know what? I'm going to take this state and give it to this other guy. York didn't mind? Uh, what could he say? Uh, no, he got to keep New York. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you can, that's what I'm saying. People yeah. are playing with New big York chunks. at the time. It wasn't New York. But yeah, and if you want to look at it, it's like, look. They and also yeah. pretty much the entire state of Delaware. Not as big as Pennsylvania, but he got to keep some of that more choice land uh, going north and east of there. Yeah, right, right. So, at the time, though, it's just vast. There's tons of it. You just take a huge uh, 45 thousand square miles of it do what you want right but getting back to penn's relationship with new jersey he started by taking over part of new jersey after it was sold by a guy who couldn't figure out how to monetize it to another guy who didn't have any money and when that deal fell through william penn stepped in and eventually alienated the other original partner causing the territory of new jersey to be divided into two parts Penn then went on to receive the Charter of Pennsylvania as well, becoming the largest landowner in the world at the time, and all the while, in his mind, planning to build a religiously tolerant utopia that was anti-war and openly accepting of all religions. And I will add Mm. that with regard to Pennsylvania, he did this, and it was world famous for how well it was working. Yeah. Also, he was the only person in this situation who had a peaceful relationship with the Iroquois, right, as well as the other tribes, the Lenni Lenape, because he made arrangements that just said, hey, look, you can be here. We don't want to fight you. We don't want to fight anybody. Yeah. Everyone can be friends. He was an outstanding example of how things probably should have been done. And that's something <laughs> well, to understand about yeah. William Penn. Yeah. But the other thing to understand is anytime you have somebody, no matter how magnanimous they are or how pious they are, they have a vision, they have a dream, and you're probably also going to be dealing with an ego. The next thing we want to talk about is a fracas known as the Mm. Keithian controversy. Mm. And this is interesting to me because there's not a whole lot about this to find in online research anyway. I'm sure there's plenty in libraries if you can get to them, but... Yeah, it's not generally attached to the Jersey Devil legend, but it is... Uh, part of it. It, it is, it is you know. part of it. And again, I want to give a nod to Bill Sprouse for bringing it to our attention in his book, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil. It's truly fascinating, some of the stuff that he uncovered, which led us down the path of trying to find out more about it. So bear with us here, because what we're talking about is this huge machine of colonization that's in place. And giant events are unfolding that are going to set the stage for the birth of the Leeds Devil. <laughs> which ultimately became the Jersey yeah. Devil. And, and the birth of these states. Really. Yeah, I mean, yeah. You, you might be trying to figure out what all this history has to do with this legend, but we're astonishing legends. We go deep, and fortunately, this is a rabbit hole that's been well-worn by the amazing authors we read to get us to this understanding. Summarizing it for you guys is the trick, but we're going to do our best. So whenever we have a story like this, as someone like William Penn, who has this grand plan, you always have someone who wants to push back, and that's when this thing happened surrounding George Keith, who I mentioned earlier, the surveyor. And he's the guy that drew the line dividing East and West Jersey, West Jersey being Penn's idea of this perfect utopia for the Quakers. Mm. George Keith was a devout Quaker, and he was unhappy with the hierarchy, and I'm summing this up very briefly. There's so much more to it. Oh, thank goodness, though. Yeah, no. (laughs) No, (laughs) We're really just trying to to make it clear how this might have evolved into 
what became the story of the Leeds Devil. Exactly. And this is what we said before. You don't hear this part of it. No, you don't. And nobody hears this part. At least I don't think they do. (laughs) No, that's what I'm saying is if you want to know how the Jersey Devil legend got started, this is a very likely possibility, an origin story. Yes. And again, credit to Bill Sprouse for bringing a lot of this to our attention. But Keith, as I said, he was not happy with the arrangements that William Penn had been making in his new colony for the Quakers. Well, he's and he's muscling his authority through, right? He is. Yeah. And I had read in more than one place that as magnanimous and devout as he was, he also was not really a man of the people. He was a, a little bit of an elitist. Mm, and yes. So he wasn't down in the dirt, but he did have a grand vision for... right a very equal, free and equal egalitarian society. But the thing to remember here is that a lot of these Quakers were getting self-appointed to positions. There was a little Mm, bit of what George Keith perceived as a corruption creeping in, a corruption of power a little bit, which it's hard to say whether it was actually there, but it was enough to make him mad because this is not how a Quaker should act in his mind. Right, not following due process. Yes. And so George Keith and the senior Quakers of the community got into a pretty protracted battle that was extreme. And during this time, there were actually pamphlets coming out that were in support of Keith that everyone was reading, bad-mouthing the Quakers. And there's some speculation that it's entirely possible that a lot of those, but we don't know, may have been actually published by a man named Daniel Leeds. Uh And we'll come back to that in a minute. Right. But Keith went so far as to draw up a creed, which Daniel Leeds may have even written or printed for him, about what being a good Quaker meant. And he felt everyone who was going to be a good Quaker should sign this creed, which, of course, it was a rhetorical question. It was just like, you're not this. You're not, you know. (laughs) You're talking about Keith now. Yes, this is what Keith was saying about them. Yeah. He accused the Quakers of New Jersey and William Penn and all of his ilk of being deists who refused the Quaker belief that Jesus was divine. Yeah, that's a huge uh, can of worms and a much bigger argument, too. Yes, it is. And I had to look up deism, and Merriam-Webster, it actually says, the belief in God based on reason rather than revelation or the teaching of any specific religion is known as deism. The word originated in England in the early 17th century as a rejection of Orthodox Christianity. Deists asserted that reason could find evidence of God in nature and that God had created the world and then left it to operate under the natural laws devised by God. So this is what he was saying that they were. They, in turn, were accusing Keith, George Keith, of believing that there were two Christs, one in heaven who was divine and a second separate one on earth who wasn't, which, as Bill Sprouse states in his book, is a theologically nonsensical argument because the nature of Christ's dual nature as a man and a God has been at the forefront of Christian philosophy since the dawn of the church. And in Keith's mind, this ignorance of this counter-argument just signified the ignorance of all the Quakers in general, so he's really just digging in. It's just getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah. Hey, well, people got burned at the stake for this kind of stuff. Yeah. But, in this but time not, period. But not in the new world, you know? No, no, this that's is... what is, we're going to start a new here, but of course, people's old arguments come over with them. That's right. And by the way, this is just a couple of the wild accusations that flew back and forth between these two sides. And eventually, there was a libel trial, total kangaroo court. It was a complete joke. Funny that you mentioned I, kangaroo. I know, it is funny, right? <laughs> with bronze wings. Yeah, you'll have to see where it gets to. But yeah. Keith was ultimately expelled or excommunicated. They didn't say that word because it's not appropriate there. But he was expelled from the Quakers, who also called themselves organizationally the Friends. They would have Friends meetings. Yes, you're no longer a friend of ours. Yes, you're no longer part of the Friends or this group of 
friends or that. You got to go make your own oatmeal, too. And in addition to being expelled, he was ordered to stop being critical of the government, which he was doing by printing pamphlets, possibly, once again, not known for sure, but Sprouse speculated that it may be Daniel Leeds was printing these pamphlets. So let's explain who Daniel Leeds is, because mm, this is where mm -hmm. we're starting to get down to the nitty-gritty. Leeds was a very headstrong man with an affinity and talent for printing books, pamphlets, and pretty much whatever else he wanted, including almanacs. Kind of an early self-publisher. He was. Without the internet. And yeah. very prolific. Yeah. And Leeds got wrapped up in the Keithian controversy and started printing books in support of Keith even after the trial which his name was on, or his initials were, but Sprouse, who wrote The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil, speculated, and I think rightfully so, that Daniel Leeds, as I had said a few minutes ago, had been printing stuff for Keith all along, or writing those works that were critical of the Quakers on behalf of George Keith. The other thing about Daniel Leeds was that not only was he a Keithian sympathizer, he was super good at dissing people. <laughs> like, <laughs> like Daniel? Yeah. yeah, he was at an M&M level with his publications. The things he was saying, just calling the other side drunks, adulterers, thieves, every other kind of politically incorrect label you can think of. And his accusations were shockingly detailed. He named ministers in the Quaker church. He named the people they were fooling around with. They were taken home drunk. And it wasn't just one publication. It was a lot. This guy was a world-class troll. And I'm not saying whether or not these things are true. I'm sure that some of them were and some of them weren't. He even distributed a publication called, quote, News of a Strumpet Cohabiting in the Wilderness or a brief abstract of the spiritual and carnal whoredoms and adulteries of the Quakers in America. Yeah, very uh, evocative titles. Right, and so here's the question. Think about this. Think about what Daniel Leeds is printing. And uh, uh, an early that, weekly world news? Yeah, kind of? an yeah. early, and think about how this very large group of people trying to set up a new colony in the new world that's pious and free and wonderful and it's going to be utopia. Right. Think about how they're feeling about this thorn in their side. Yeah, no, no. This is causing a lot of bitterness. Yes. All around. And know. what I love about these super long titles is funny because Sprouse has a very funny sense of humor because he did the same thing with his book. And it was lost on me when I first started reading it because I didn't understand right. how these things worked and how the almanacs worked. But the full title of Sprouse's book is The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil or Bebop's Miscellany, an immodest inquiry into the origins of the Leeds Devil with remarks on the Keithian affair, Titan Leeds' ghost, Deborah Leeds' last will and testament, Benjamin Franklin, Quaker refugees, Pine Rats, the great <laughs> Wooselbug visit of 1909, Harry Leeds' performance art, suburban identity crises, and the cultural relics of the old religion inspired by conversations with my grandmother, Helen Leeds. <laughs> Well, you know what? They didn't have banner ads back no, then. No, but so that's the full room. title. I, I yeah. kind of like these long titles. It, no, it's, I know. It's, it's very Kubrick-esque, well, but our Kubrick is clearly aping them, but I'm saying it's very it's, interesting. It's right. It's a style of the time, and like I said, you're not jamming it up with uh, ads of like, one weird trick, and you won't believe who looks like what now. So, yeah. You know what I'm saying? So there's a lot of space on the front page of these titles, but these are tabloidy. They're like broadsheets. That's not a word, I don't think, but I Tabloidy. Like I like it. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about is that it's trying to grab your attention. He doesn't put these out so that people just... Just leave them on the, you know, you say the windshield, but, you know, they tucked yeah. under the horse's saddle. It's yeah. like, yeah, I'm <laughs> yeah. going to throw this in the street or just ride home with it like people do with the flyers tucked under their uh, windshield wiper. Yes. The point is, hey, check this out. Pretty salacious. Lots of adultery things going on here. Read this. 
And whether you believe it or not, I don't really have to make that clear. It's like the deed is done. You know what I'm saying? The seed is planted. It's like, oh, did the reverend do that? Well, that's scandalous. You know, and, and so it's very effective is what I'm saying. Yes, it yeah. is. And, it, and it's getting people's goats. It's really getting under their skin. In fact, one guy wrote yeah, a... Funny, count- funny you should say goat. Yes, getting the goat. <laughs> Kangaroo right. court, getting the goat. Yeah. The counterpoint is that this guy comes out with this rebuttal to one of his publications where he goes through, it's like when you get that email from somebody and it really gets you mad. And then oh, yeah, like, yeah. And then you go back and you just, you say, response is below. And you go down and you just, after each statement, you write your own thing. <laughs> in red, yeah, in caps. And, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right, yeah. That's what this guy did. So he came out with this counterpoint. Guess what the name of it was? And it's addressing one of Daniel Lee's prior publications. It is actually called Satan's Harbinger. Yeah. So he's essentially saying that Daniel Leeds is announcing the presence of Satan in a way, but that's what a harbinger is. It's a servant. It's a conveyor of a message or, yes. Yes. So it's the first time that we're seeing Leeds being referred to as a servant of Satan. And this is something that Sprouse pointed out in his book I thought was really fascinating. He did a lot of research on this, and there's more and more cases of it in the book. Uh, read the book if you want to check that out. But Well, I was going to say, yeah, when you will see some articles when you go and read this, is like, well, the first mention of a devil was around the early 1700s. I believe this is it. Yeah, this is it. And the other thing is that that I read in other research was that at the time, it was very common to refer to a political opponent as a devil. All this kind of devil thing, it was just part of the vernacular when you wanted to insult somebody. Exactly. It was part of the vernacular, and depending on who you were and what you believed, it could be you could laugh it off like, oh, you devil, you. Or you could be like the count and get really flushed. It's like... Madam, do not ever call me a devil. Because yes. it's like, wait a minute, I, I'm in league with the devil. How'd you know? How'd you yes. know? What, whatever the Count's deal was, he did not take it Reforce as Of course, referring to the Count of St. Germain. Exactly. If, if you're our... recently joining the show, get back through our archives for more information on that. Right. Of the time, of the era, like I said, it could be a joking kind of thing, but it's also, it could be a deep jab, especially if you're a very religious person. That's not a good thing to be called. Yeah. He did not take that very well. Well, there's not a whole lot to find, as I said, about the Keithian controversy in research. In fact, it's relatively obscure unless you're looking in the right places, but it was a critical event in the early formation of what would become the United States. And it's really important to understand how historically important and critical this disagreement was because it points to where we might be getting in the origin of the story of the Leeds Devil. Now, there was one book that I found a section on that I thought was really interesting and I believe that I'm the one that found this. It could have been mm-hmm. somebody in the ARC that I'm not crediting. Oh, properly, which, but I which think is this? I found this one. This is from a book called The Impact of the Kabbalah in the 17th Century, The Life and Thought of Francis Mercury von Helmont, 1614 through 1698, parentheses, Brill's Series in Jewish Studies 9, close parentheses, by Allison P. Coderre. All right, so I just want to read this little section about the Keithian controversy. The Keithian controversy was not merely a minor incident in the history of the Quakers. Researcher J. William Frost maintains that it had profound ramifications not only for the Quakers, but for the history of Pennsylvania and indeed American colonial history. This is Frost. The early history of Pennsylvania is replete with turmoil caused by settlers feuding with each other, ignoring royal officials, defying local authority, and belittling even William Penn. The colony never became the harmonious holy experiment envisaged by the proprietor, and the most bitter struggle, which threatened to tear apart the foundations of the new society, started among supposedly peace-loving Quakers. The Keithian controversy, beginning in late 1691, 
convulsed the colonies of West Jersey and Pennsylvania for over a decade, almost cost William Penn his charter, and by leading to the foundation of Anglican and Baptist churches, helped to ensure religious diversity. Friends, constituting a majority of the population, dominated the government, and established the character of the settlements scattered along the Delaware River. Without an understanding of the impact of the Keithian controversy among Quakers, much of the early history of Pennsylvania and West Jersey will remain obscure. Oh. Coderre goes on to say, Keith's personality worked against his reforms. He tried to advance his views too quickly, and his arrogant and argumentative manner estranged him personally from many of the Quakers who might or did agree with him intellectually. His behavior eventually brought him into open conflict with the majority of American Quakers. History repeats itself, by the way. In 1691, Keith was charged with heresy by William Stockdale and Thomas Fitzwater. These men accused Keith of preaching to Christ, a spiritual Christ within, and the historical Christ who died at Jerusalem. In essence, this charge amounted to a severe criticism of Keith's growing conservatism, for these men felt that Keith was ignoring the Quaker belief in the inner light and turning Quakerism into merely another orthodox form of Protestantism. In his usual aggressive way, Keith countered the charge against himself with one of heresy against his two accusers, saying that they did not believe in the historical Christ and therefore could not be Christians. During the course of this dispute, Keith was charged for the first time with believing in the transmigration of souls, which is, I believe, a fancy term for reincarnation. Oh, look at there. It's also apparently a reasonably tasty beer that's being brewed in Atlanta. Transmigration? Yeah. <laughs> no, transmigration of souls. That's its full name. Oh, of the beer. Yeah, I was looking really? for other stuff and I came across that. By the way, they have a great logo. It's a chimera. It's an animal with oh, an arm really? in it. Oh, really? Yeah, well, there thing. you go. You it all, it. all beers is connected. Yeah, yeah, but anyway, we shouldn't wrap this up before we point out that the libel case against George Keith says the following on page 42 of Sprouse's book. Quote, but for Daniel, is in Leeds, the trial had less grandiose consequences. It deprived him of his printer. By the mid-1690s, his friends and religious allies were defeated or in retreat. He himself was an outcast in his own meeting, which is the what they call for the group of friends or Quakers who get together, which he had been cast out of. Suspected, if not of outright sedition, then at least of consorting with seditious elements. George Keith had returned to England. William Bradford, who we heard a little bit about, had decamped for New York, and Leeds father, whom he'd followed to New Jersey, was dead. So I just wanted to set a little bit of the stage here. What's happening is with this whole Keithian controversy, it's really about George Keith, but Daniel Leeds was right there. He was yeah. probably printing materials for him, and even if he wasn't, after Keith's trial, he was printing materials afterwards, and he represented, as I said before, a very, very sharp thorn in the side of the Quakers who were trying so hard to set up their new colony. Right, and here's a the point. They may not have been doing everything right, the Quakers, for the general good, or they were bullheaded in some way, but he didn't go about the disagreements very well. Right. Keith, you can't just start yelling at people and expect them to come to your point. Yes, and that's the point. Keith was that way and Leeds was that way. They were both extremely argumentative right. and pointed and unwilling to compromise. I mean, a lot of the things that I, I didn't necessarily want to get into for this story, but during the height of the Keithian controversy, people who were in support of the Keithian doctrine, for lack of a better word, yeah. were charging into Quakers' friends' meetings and staging debates and arguments inside the meeting halls with them. Yeah. So it was. It really had devolved to a serious situation, a, a full-blown schism in Quaker philosophy. Well, this kind of unfavorable and uh, ill association, shall we say, with Leeds and Keith 
would go on to further damage Leeds, as we'll see in a minute. You know, back in my day... Oh, here we go. Hey, pal, you're only a couple of years behind me and catching up fast. That is the truth. I was just thinking back when people launched their own business or you had some kind of project you wanted people to know about, you had to pay for a listing in the yellow pages. That's like paper that you leave out in the sun too long, right? <laughs> hey, don't pretend you're too young to know, okay? But you're right. Probably nobody under 30 remembers what that is. Well, it was a section for business listings and a massive ancient yellowed text written long ago by monks in an abbey that had tiny little ads and numbers that, that people dialed on telephones. It was the main way people found a business or service to hire. And uh, well, nobody does that anymore. Precisely. See, the fact is, nowadays, if you want people to know whatever it is you're doing, whether you have your own business or you're working on a project at home, you simply must have a web presence. Or even if you already have a website, but someone else is designing and managing it for you and you have no control over it, it's costing you hundreds of dollars every month. The point is, you can easily do this yourself with Squarespace. Right. Especially like you said about people that already have a website for their going concern. I just don't think they know how easy and affordable and even how fun it is to do it all yourself with Squarespace. With Squarespace's award-winning templates and all-in-one platform, you can be up on the web with your own beautiful, unique domain in days, not weeks or months, and for a lot less than paying somebody to do it for you. And with Squarespace's award-winning 24-7 customer support, you'll never get stuck working on your own site. In fact, all I have to do if I have a question is I just go to their help section on the main page, or actually, I just Google the question and the answer comes right up and I'm back to working. And there's never any patching, upgrades, or installations ever. Squarespace takes care of everything for you on the back end. Make your next move online right now with Squarespace. Just go to squarespace.com and use our offer code LEGENDS. That's L-E-G-E-N-D-S at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase of a website and domain. Squarespace. Make your next move. This is Steve Carefit. From Conway, Arkansas to Nodafi, Czech Republic, this is Astonishing Legends, worldwide and unstoppable. Now, the other thing that we alluded to earlier was that there wasn't necessarily a lot of money to make in giving the Quakers a hard time. And the way that Daniel... <laughs> is there ever? Yeah, yeah. right. The, yeah. the way that Daniel Leeds supported himself, his main bread and butter was publishing almanacs. An almanac, this is from Wikipedia, is an annual publication that includes information like weather forecasts, farmers' planting dates, tide tables, and other tabular data, often arranged according to the calendar. Celestial figures and various statistics are found in almanacs, such as the rising and setting times of the sun and moon, the dates of eclipses, hours of high and low tides, and religious festivals. Well, I'm sure many of you, the older ones, have heard of the Farmer's Almanac, and of what? course of the more famous one, Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac. Poor Richard's Almanac, yes. And it, except for the religious festivals, I now have a Casio that does most of this. So <laughs> watch, that is. Yes, tides, right? And uh, sunsets and sunrises. Yes, does all of that. Yeah, the Farmer's <laughs> the farmer's Almanac was fun because it would give you handy tips like yes. uh, use lemon and baking soda to discover away those tough stains. And well, and here's the interesting thing about that. That is the famous one in Poor Richard's Almanac, which was written, Poor Richard was a pseudonym for Benjamin Franklin. Yeah. That is also one of the more famous ones that's ever been produced. Daniel Leeds' almanac predated that. Yeah. He was the first, I believe, possibly the first guy to write an almanac in 
the Americas. Right. The problem with that is that his almanac had some unsavory ideas or presentation about it that didn't sit well with the Quakers. Once again, this is the fascinating part that I find with this publication because it it gets esoteric and um, cultish in it a way. It does. It gets a little funky because he the Quakers were not comfortable with a variety of things about it. One was his use of the Gregorian calendar. I want to quote Bill Sprouse here from his book, from pages 194 and 195 of his book, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil. The Gregorian calendar's familiar names, Thursday, Friday, March, June for months, etc., for the days of the week and the months of the year, were not okay with the Quakers. The Quaker convention was to refer to the days and months numerically, first month, second month, first day, second day, etc., since to do otherwise was to evoke gods of the old religions, Thor, Frigga, Mars, etc., whom the Quakers wished to suppress. But Leeds' almanac was the old religion. Simply changing the names at the top of the page wasn't going to change that. Daniel Leeds, as almanac maker, was a practitioner of an occult belief system. The advice his almanacs gave on planting, on medicine, on the killing of bedbugs, on the peeling of onions, was understood to proceed from his knowledge of the movements of the heavenly spheres. Daniel Leeds was an astrologer. Well, that's not really accepted <laughs> by yeah. your, you know, your leading Christian faiths in the area. The Leeds Almanac was an astrological toolkit. It gave readers the data they needed to make their own astrological calculations. And astrology, along with the arts of geomancy, chiromancy, alchemy, metoscopy, etc., was part of the old religion, one of the heathen or pagan traditions that predated Christianity and that had existed beside or beneath it for 1,700 years. Exactly. See, now the Quakers, because they're pretty fundamental in a way, and you know, we think of astrology, yeah, that's fun. It's something you read in the back of Cosmo for your, you know, what, what's going to happen this, well, yes. I meet the, you know, the perfect someone this month. But they saw it as pagan and, exactly. and blasphemous and not something to be taken lightly. If you're dabbling in cosmology, mysticism, angelology, and natural magic, you might be in league with the devil. Yeah, back in this time, Things were very mystical, and so you're seeing a discussion and sometimes a fight with rationalism versus the old beliefs, but this guy is like, he's dipping into the necromancy and all the crazy dark arts, and really he's putting it out there because if you think about it, farming can be very difficult if you don't know what you're doing, and even when you do, and a farmer needs all the help they can get, and they look for all the help they can get because you can have a whole crop fail, and guess what? At the end of the, the harvest time comes, your crop failed, you're out of luck. Yeah. You have nothing to eat. He made no money. And this in could the be Pine Barren specifically, yeah. it was hard enough That's to grow anything anyway. Exactly. That is a great thing to point out. This is not great farmland. That's why nobody really developed it much. And so it's hard scrabble. It's really tough going. And the only thing that flourished there ultimately were cranberry farms. They did those Oh, bogs well. for the, yeah, for bogs. the bogs. Yeah. 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 So yeah. And it's just another thing that makes it real easy for the Quakers to be like, this guy, <laughs> this guy with these almanacs. Yeah. And Keithian, and he yeah. says all this stuff about us that's not nice. He buggeth me. Yes, yeah. he right. buggeth me. Right. Ultimately, Daniel and poor Richard, also known as Benjamin Franklin, 
got into a battle themselves through letters and publications where Franklin frequently got the better of Leeds by making fun of him and prodding him in an extremely biting and satirical way. Leeds' comebacks were always present, but they stank. He was not good like Franklin was. So <laughs> no, he's a Franklin. Look, you don't go up against a major wit like Franklin. Yeah. Right? This is just another war of words playing out in the press that continued between Franklin and Leeds' son, Titan, who ultimately took over the almanac when Leeds retired, when Daniel retired. Because that was the family's cash cow, as Bill Sprouse called it. And at one point, Franklin even published the impending date of Titan Leeds' death. As a joke. As a joke, yes. He was was taking advantage in a tongue-in-cheek way of the idea of almanacs being able to predict anything, really. And there's a lot more about that in Sprouse's book, so pick it up. If you'd like to read about that part of Daniel's life, it's highly entertaining. As if all of this wasn't enough of a reason to vilify Daniel Leeds... (laughs) Man, I tell you, I got to take a break here. I really want to see that almanac now. I know, I know. Well, you know, I found, I was looking for images for the website, and there was one online which I borrowed until we get the cease and desist. Yes. Uh, But it it came from a listing for an original version of one of Leeds' almanacs. I mean, he published them for many, many years, decades. Yes, he did, right. And his son took it over. And his son took it over, yes. yes. I think it was 50 or 60 years the family made money off of it. But there was an original copy of one for sale online for $15,000. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, well, that is a historical document. Yes. But to be able to read that, to show you the level of wit, and uh, it's like when somebody makes a good barb at you, and you come in like, well, you so-and-so. Yeah. No, does it deflate? No, no, it's... No, they're laughing at Ben Franklin's joke, not yours now. And you're but, at home in the shower trying to figure out what you, what you should have said in the moment. It's the wit. Yes, that's called the wit under the staircase after yeah. the dinner party. Like, oh, man, I should. I went, That was a zinger. No, I could have got him. If only I hadn't printed those thousand fires. <laughs> well, yeah, they get to kind of bring it on themselves a little. And that's the only way you can respond with a jab. It's like, yeah, you got me there, Ben. All yeah. right. Yeah. Ben Franklin was joking that the prediction of his death had come true. Yes. And he actually died on that day. And then Titus like, well, I know I did not. How dare you? So he's writing back Ben Franklin, you know, in response saying like, you're incorrect. I did not die. And then Franklin's joke was to write back saying like, well, there you go. It's his ghost writing I'm this. hearing from his ghost. <laughs> yeah. yeah like, you can't. So that's the level of joking. I mean, I'm sure there's some real animosity there. Or this guy, you know, the leads people is like, it's his competitor. So he's jabbing him a little. Well, and apparently at the time and through our research, I found out that there were a fair amount of almanac feuds. Between oh, yeah, various yeah. almanac publishers. Yeah. So it's, this, well, this no, was it's a whole thing exactly. that was going on. Exactly. Look yeah. at, you know, don't read The Sun, read The Inquirer. Don't read The Inquirer, read In Touch. They all do it to each other, but it's a very fierce arena there because especially back in that day, as you can imagine, there's not much other entertainment. I mean, you have books, but those are expensive. These are more affordable and they also provide entertainment yes. to people. So yeah, you didn't have a whole lot. The barn dance and this. Yeah. Well, after the Keithian controversy that we discussed earlier, and we wanted to make clear with regard to the almanacs, that's something that's going on throughout all of this, because that takes place over the course of Daniel Lee's life and even his son's life continues for quite some time. But after the Keithian controversy was done and George Keith was gone The fallout was that the proprietary governments of East and West Jersey surrendered both regions back to the crown. So this destroys William Penn's dream of the West Jersey Quaker utopia. And a lot of people have blamed George Keith for it and possibly Daniel Leeds for his participation in it. But I want to be clear that Sprouse makes clear in his book that Leeds did not necessarily have a well-documented participation in the Keithian controversy beyond speculation on Sprouse's part that he might have published some of that material for George Keith. The only other 
involvement he had in it was when he appeared in court during the libel suit or one of the suits against George Keith to report that someone had fibbed a little bit with a survey in, oh, in, defense that's right. of, in, in defense of Keith. He had a small appearance in court. But my point is that who knows what the locals knew about whether or not Leeds was actually publishing stuff for him. And even if he wasn't, he was publishing things on his own after Keith left the country. Yeah. He believed in the Keith message, right? Yes. Yeah. The other thing you can look at here is that this whole system that they were trying to set up has now fully collapsed. And Leeds was right there in the middle of it when it all went down. Just something to consider. Now, for some unknown reason at this point, King Charles II, well, I guess the reason is probably nepotism, appoints appoints Edward Hyde, third Earl of Clarendon, or Lord Cornbury, as governor of New Jersey, which is now, once again, one territory. Now, the reason I said nepotism is because Lord Cornbury, which I seem to have a hard time saying, is (laughs) the future Queen Anne's cousin, Anne being the daughter of... James, who would be the king after Charles II, because Charles II didn't have any kids. So that's how that's all related. There's a lot of... It's very convoluted. Yeah, it's very convoluted. But the thing about Cornbury is that he is notoriously corrupt. So corrupt that, as Forrest's favorite expression is, to this day, he is considered the most corrupt official to have ever been a part of the British Empire. Well... (laughs) Geez, that's a pretty broad uh, spectrum. Uh, well, I'm I don't just know. telling you, that's how he's considered. He was known well, for taking bribes, yeah. giving bribes, stealing from the treasury, and pretty much just doing everything wrong when it came to politicking. Well, I don't think he wanted to hide it very well or cared too much. He spent extravagant sums on candles and firewood for the two colonial garrisons. And he built a pleasure house on Governor's Island. So, <laughs> yeah, I, I think he was very extravagant. Well, shall not we caring say. is part yeah. of the problem. And in addition yeah. to all of this, he was a transvestite. Not that there's anything wrong with that. Well, <laughs> but yeah. he would appear at official events. In fact, addressing the New York Assembly in full drag to better represent the presence of Her Majesty the Queen. Well, that was his explanation. <laughs> that was yeah. His, yeah, he I can supposedly see, yeah. said, "Quote: You're very stupid not to see the propriety of it." <laughs> Yeah, well, I'm sure he was thinking like, yeah, they'll buy that, right? Like, yeah, yeah I'm, I'm wearing the dress out of respect, right? Yeah, my so cousin. you guys can feel like, you know, she's here. Yeah. But this is well, the thing comfortable. I, I yeah. don't understand. We found a portrait of him in drag. I'm not convinced that's not Photoshop. I don't, I'm not taking the bait on it. So uh, well, I, I need to see it hanging in a museum. Yeah. So here's, <laughs> well, here's the funny thing that you can look back on history and, and make your own decisions about. It's like... It's not something I would suspect a governor to sit for a portrait of. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like it's not it's not like a snapshot at a party. But like, he was doing that every day, daily. Yes. So he, when he got up in right. the morning, he got into drag and then he went about his business. He still has to have an air of propriety even above what he thinks that he can get away with. So, you know, painting, you gotta sit for a couple of weeks, for hours, just sitting there in a corset. Yes, well, with a, with a male waistline. I know we have some art history people, so let us know if the portrait of Lord Cornbury mm. in drag is yeah. real. Daniel Leeds, coming back to our hero, apparently did very well under Cornbury's regime, adding to the image he had now cultivated as fomenting the failure of William Penn's dream of having the Quaker utopia in West Jersey. He moved up to serve on the Colonial Council just four months after New Jersey was surrendered to the Crown and eventually on the Colonial Assembly. 
He's appearing more and more like a loyalist, hell-bent on keeping things the way they are across the pond, and not only that, grifting the system along the way. Cornberry was so bad that he was ultimately recalled to England due to wide distaste for him, and Leeds was politically ruined for having participated in that regime. He never returned after that, to any type of political position. No, but you can imagine how the Quakers saw all that. First of all, they are not loyalists. They want their own thing. So they're trying to get away from England and uh, English rule. And Cornberry's the pinnacle of that. Plus, they think he's a little odd. And now Leeds is associated with all that. And the other thing you have to remember is that at this time, all of this stuff is coinciding with Leeds still publishing anti-Quaker rhetoric all over the place. So there's a whole lot more that happens here. And if it interests you, again, check out Bill Sprouse's book. But we wanted you guys to understand the following. Daniel Leeds is at the very root of something huge going on at the outset of both the establishment of New Jersey and Pennsylvania. It is a pitched battle of rhetoric between warring factions of Quakerism in which he appears quite possibly to be the primary scribe or thorn in the side of the establishment with his relentless inflammatory publications, both during the controversy possibly as an author supporting George Keith, but also after Keith had been expelled as the thing that wouldn't leave. He just keeps needling the Quaker establishment. This leads to him actually being called Satan's harbinger in a publication issued just to point-by-point refute the things that he had said in a prior publication of his own. Now, at the time, as we said earlier, political opponents routinely referred to each other as the devil, but there may be something more here, and it's hard to know what was being discussed by both sides behind closed doors or all of the personal slights that were bandied about as gossip. But it's easy to imagine Daniel Leeds as becoming pretty reviled. Now, getting back to who Daniel is, and especially related to Bill Sprouse, I thought this was pretty interesting. He was the son of one of the first Leedses that came to the United States, Thomas Leeds. Records are all over the place on some of these kids, so remember, as with all ancestral research, there can be some inaccuracies. But Thomas had one son, Daniel, with his wife, Mary Cartwright. Daniel was born on November 15, 1651. Now, according to Ancestry.com, Daniel may have been married a few times, but it was hard for me to corroborate that since every member's tree that contains him has different information, much like all the facts surrounding the Jersey Devil stories. But either way, Daniel and Deborah had a lot of kids. Now, this lineage here is directly from Sprouse's book, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil. It's on page seven, and I'm quoting. In 1704, Deborah and Daniel had their first child, Mary. This event was followed by the arrival of Robert in 1706. Then came John in 1708, Japhet Jr. in 1710, Nehemiah in 1712, and Sarah in 1713. In 1714, there was James. Then came Daniel, uh, I guess Jr., they don't say that, but another Daniel in 1716, and another Deborah in 1720, and then Dorothy in 1722, Anne in 1724, and Hannah in 1726. Six boys and six girls. So this is Brady Bunch times two. This is our second show in a row, referencing the Brady Bunch, I believe. Mm. Both Japhet and his future wife, Deborah, appear to have been alive in 1735, the year the legend says the Jersey Devil was born, because Japhet's will was written in 1736, and Deborah was named in it. She would have been about 50 years old, and he would have been about 52. And Japhet's the one we want to focus on out of this lineup of all these kids, because Deborah, his wife's maiden name, had been listed as Smith, although Bill Sprouse interviews a man named Ken Soey, 
the official township historian of Galloway Township, where Leeds Point is, where the Leeds were known to live. And Ken had done a lot of research, and he speculated in Sprouse's book that Deborah's maiden name may in fact have been Shords, S-H-O-U-R-D-S. Now, this is frequently misreported as Shrouds, but the name was in fact Shords. Jaffet and Deborah Leeds, who were Quakers, that actually held the friends meetings at their own house, were ostensibly the parents of the Jersey Devil. Six boys and six girls, think about it, that's 12. A 13th child coming along, in theory, could be the Jersey Devil. Now, Sprouse points out in his book that his grandmother, who told him when he was nine years old that he was related to the Jersey Devil, was a direct male line descendant, eight generations removed from Deborah, or Mother Leeds, who was the one who gave birth to the Leeds Devil, or the idea of it at the very least. Jaffet's father was the Daniel Leeds that we've been talking about, the same one who got caught up in the Keithian controversy and in a war of rhetoric with the Quakers that ultimately led to the demise of their colony in New Jersey. The Jersey Devil was his grandchild. Hey, Scott, you know here at Astonishing Legends, we get more than a few requests to cover some of history's most gruesome murderers, serial killers, if you will. You know, real charmers like H.H. Holmes, Chuck Manson, or Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. Yeah, well, you know what, though? We don't have to because we both just found an awesome podcast that covers all those killers better than we ever could, and we want to tell you about it. It's called, you guessed it, Serial Killers, and it's on the Parcast Network. I gotta say, the show is really well produced, and the hosts, Greg and Vanessa, have great voices. Yeah, how about that? A show where both people have great voices. (laughs) (laughs) No one's saying you don't. (laughs) Their in-depth research, profiling, and analysis thoroughly explores the mind of the serial killer, that deep, dark place. So just hearing the details, well, it's for mature audiences, so be forewarned. But if the subject of true crime and serial killers and their truly heinous crimes fascinate you like it does us, well, then that's exactly what you want to hear. Because always with these cases, what everybody wants to know is why. Yeah, and it's not just the details of each case, although those are fully covered, but the show's angle is to take a solid investigative approach and delve deep into the psyche of each murderer, trying to find out what made them tick and better understand their psychological profile to answer that question, why? Ah, yes, the motive of the unsub. Well, hosts Greg and Vanessa, along with their own team of true crime researchers, reveal little-known facts about each killer as they analyze the evidence and share their real confessions. And for the more recent cases, you'll actually hear audio from the serial killers themselves. Man, if that doesn't chill you to the bone, nothing will. Oh, and they've got all the greatest hits in there already. Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, and the redneck Charles Manson. Uh, Just to be clear, that's not a put-down of the actual Charles Manson. That's just the moniker for the serial killer Donald Pee Wee Gaskins. So, Charlie, if you're up there in Corcoran listening, we didn't mean anything by it. Serial Killers has shows coming up on the Casanova Killer. And yeah, these are folks you don't want to hear from, good or bad. The show drops every Monday, so go check them out right away by going to iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast directory and search for Serial Killers. Wait, that doesn't, that didn't come out. (laughs) Yeah, no, no, no. We don't suggest searching for actual serial killers. Just this terrific show. So once again, just search for the podcast called Serial Killers or visit parcast.com slash serial to start listening now. That's parcast, P-A-R, C-A-S-T dot com slash serial to listen now. 
Hi, I'm Dan Burkholz, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends with Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Now, back to the show. So now we've explained the idea that among the Quakers, Daniel Leeds was a thorn in their side, if not an outright pariah, constantly taunting them with his sharp words and never-ending blog posts for all the world to see. In fact, much like today, he got to the point where he was anonymously trolling them by signing only his initials on some of the publications, which was not really noticed because it was a common practice for Quakers to use just their initials at times. But he was doing it because he wanted to make sure that people didn't dismiss what he was saying once they saw his name. He was all about maximum impact. So Daniel, Satan's harbinger, has a pretty big family sprouting up in the Pine Barrens. If you remember in part one, we led off with the more or less most accepted origin story for the Jersey Devil, wherein we mentioned that Mother Leeds gave birth to the devil at a birthing house known as the Shord's House. Ken Soe seems to believe that Deborah Leeds was in fact a Shord's herself, not a smith as some have said, and that when Jaffet Leeds married her, he moved into her family home known as the Shord's House. And that's where the birth took place. Sure, there were midwives there, but perhaps the homestead itself was named for the Shord's family. This does not fall in line with people who say that the Jersey Devil was actually born at Jaffet and Deborah's house. But there's all kinds of misinformation about this. I think Sprouse had a hard time figuring out when he went looking for where Jaffet's original house was, where it actually was. Well, we have a photo of it, if that is to be believed. Actually, I believe it because it was apparently taken by the National Park Service's Historic American Building Survey. The photo that we found actually has the photographer listed, Nathaniel Ewan dated May 7th, 1937, and it's the exterior west view of Jaffet Leeds House, Moss Hill Road, Leeds Point, Atlantic County, New Jersey. Now, it may have fallen down. This is a it's bi- definitely fallen down. Yeah, this is a, yeah. It's a very, very <laughs> old house. So yes. it's a stone exterior, but it's kind of a cool photo, old black and white photo, and that was part of the National Park Service's, you know, mission to document historical buildings. So, yes. yeah, it may have fallen Unlike in. the BLM that just tears them down. Well, don't get into that. And that's what they did in Panama City and no, Death I know. Valley because they're worried I, about liability. It's a fact. Now, I not, was there, my friend, yeah. in Death Valley, and yeah. I saw, because my grandmother had described a bunch of like, miners' cabins that she thought were kind of cool, and they still had a bunch of antiques in them. You can right. go check out, and then that we... That people hunt. might cut themselves on. So there's a whole other it, different so reason. tear it all down. Yeah, there's a bunch of different reasons, but a lot of people are very angry and upset with them for that. So, again, it goes back to... Where did this actually happen? Do these people actually exist? And it seems they did. You know, but whether this devil child was born in this exact address, I don't think anybody can nail that down. Yeah, and it seems like the people that could nail it down are intentionally vague about it because there's all kinds of legend trippers coming to the area, stealing parts of buildings, bothering people, well, and yeah. they're kind of sick of it, which, yeah. by the way, we're not encouraging you to go there to yes. see. So. <laughs> Especially if it's a stone building, which this house was, and a lot of these houses were, people want it, like, let me, I'm just going to take a chip off it. Oh, yeah. yeah. And guess what? A couple thousand people do that over the years, and uh, you've got a pile of rubble. But apparently this house existed at this address. It may now since be gone, but people want to know exactly where did the devil child spawn from and, and where did it fly out the window and, and all or that kind of stuff. Or up the chimney. Or up the chimney. Depending or, on which story. Or what, it, what I like, too, is that he would come back every day after he was born and sit on the fence and cry for his mama, and she just refused him and... He finally stopped coming back. Yeah. Yeah. She was afraid to approach him. I wouldn't know what to do. I would leave a dish of watered food out, you know, yeah. but welcoming him back into the house, I don't know, especially after he was slapping people around. Well, so One of the other things, too, that Ken Soe had said, the historian from Galloway Township, was that Deborah Shord's family practiced 
herbalism, yeah. which herbalism is the study of botany and use of plants intended for medicinal purposes or for supplementing a diet. So well, people do that now. They take saw palmetto capsules or all these different uh, herbal supplements for their health. Well, people were doing it back then. There's no formal pharmaceutical industry to dole out medicine, so you're kind of on your own in a lot of cases. Yeah. This is way before even uh, penicillin wasn't even invented until like the early 40s, late 30s, early 40s, I believe. Came yeah, in. here's the thing about that, though. You don't have to go too far to imagine that the Quakers feel like that's some form of pagan ritual oh, or of course. witchcraft. Yes, you're in the cauldrons and the in the flagon with the dragon on it. And uh, you can imagine somebody peeking through the window and they see somebody brewing something over a bubbling cauldron cauldron and the imagination start flying, but it all, it's starting to paint this thing in a bad way and not in favor of the leads. Yeah. So let's take a look at uh, what you like to call for us the 10,000 foot view on this. Let's clear the air here. I don't actually like to say that. Well, you said it to me a bunch of times. <laughs> you know why? Because it's a business term I've heard in meetings. It's like, uh, I hate, you well, and I both you need hate. to stop saying it. Well, it's just with us. What I'm saying is that the, it's the overview. Yes. I don't, but you and I generally don't uh, favor uh, well, I like cutesy business terms. Well, well then you can use it. I don't it. see it as a cutesy business term because okay. I never heard it until you said it. Yeah, it's but, like thinking outside the box, uh, yeah, that, stovepipe sure. integration. Uh, never heard that. Know, disruptor. Okay, let's stop with the business terms and get back to the story here. So the Jersey Devil, where did it come from? We've got a man who's had a long, vitriolic, and protracted battle in print with the Quakers trying very hard to set up their own version of a utopian society in West Jersey. Mr. Leeds, Daniel Leeds, he's published numerous documents maligning them. He publishes an almanac regularly that is replete with astrological information seen as sacrilegious by his Quaker brethren. He's been associated with a fracas known as the Keithian Controversy, and as such, the end of East and West New Jersey as proprietorships that wound up being surrendered back to the crown. Shortly after that, he benefits greatly from taking part in the administration of the most corrupt governor in the history of the British Empire, making it look like he intentionally destroyed the Quaker ideas for New Jersey in order to benefit himself personally. His son, Jaffet, is about to have, with his wife Deborah, what is possibly a 13th child, if not the 13th, one of at least quite a few, and Daniel's grandchild. Jaffet's wife, as we just said, practices herbalism, something that could easily be understood to be a form of witchcraft. With all of the children that Jaffet and Deborah had, and the idea that Deborah was advanced in years, it's entirely conceivable that she may have given birth to a child with Down syndrome or some other similar condition. This would be Daniel Leeds' grandson, Daniel, ostracized from his own friends' meeting of Quakers, given to mudslinging in print and corruption in practice, and now the only guy left behind after the destructive Keithian controversy who could be scapegoated for all the trouble that had wrought, including the collapse of an entire colony's governmental system. How far would you have to go for just a few of these ingredients to work their ways into the myth of a devil child? The Pine Barrens may have been infertile in their soil, but the conditions for the origin of the story of the Leeds Devil couldn't have been more perfect. There you have it. It seems like the conditions are ripe for this story to be attached to the Leeds family and specifically to Daniel Leeds' progeny, to me. I think that Sprouse made a really good case for that. I think once you look at all of the things that Daniel Leeds was caught up in, it's reasonable to think that a lot of people had it out for him. But the real question for us, and this is what I want to ask you about, is was this something born from these events that took place with the Leeds family, or was it something that preexisted, something even older? Because we found evidence 
that there was something strange going on in this area way before the Leedses even came along. There's several factors, let's say, going on here. Many layers, all adding up to the story that you know today in this character, which is kind of tongue-in-cheek. But of course, it goes way back before the white man. You always look to the indigenous peoples, the first peoples that were here in the areas, for the real story. And as you'll read in a lot of sources, the local Native Americans, the Leni Lenape, have a name for the creek. And I believe this is kind of more towards western New Jersey, eastern Pennsylvania. They call it the Papuessing. And Papuessing apparently means the place of the dragon. Yeah. Now, what do they mean by that? And the Leni Lenape were in this area for 2,800 years. Yes. Prior no. to yeah. the Leeds's. And here's a quote actually from Lauren Coleman in Bruce Hallenbeck's book. The first people to note the presence of a peculiar animal in the general area were the Native Americans, who said it originally appeared across state lines in what is now Bucks County, Pennsylvania, where alleged sightings of the devil have been made in recent years, just north of Philadelphia. In fact, the local Indians named the creek Papawessing, meaning place of the dragon. And in 1677, Swedish explorers examined some weird footprints in the rocks near the same creek and renamed it Drake Kill, which also refers to a dragon. Well, there you go. It's a dragon. We're saying it well, here officially. I mean, it's, yeah, <laughs> it's interesting. Well, again, look, th this all didn't just start in a Quaker feud in 1735 or even, say, a decade earlier than that with Daniel Leeds. I mean, it fomented, but what happened is, like I said, you have several different things going on here. You have this spat going on in the community and the outlying region that's being fought in the publications of the day. And you know what happens at school or, or at, at a workplace with some jerks and it's like they give you a nickname and that's like, you're now T-Bone yeah. to do a Seinfeld reference. Like, well, I want to be called T-Bone. No, no, that's it. It's stuck. You know, it's like, why is my Delta Tau Kai name Flounder? Too right. late. It's stuck. That's it. From then on, you're known as Flounder. From here on, all these associations are made. You're now the Leeds devil. This devil beast that terrorizes the countryside is now part of and connected to your family. Right. Again, this is they share some responsibility in, in this, probably a lot, the Leeds family, in that being that kind of um, prickly, shall we say, with the people of the time and, and getting into it with them. And also the circumstances, the political circumstances, that's had a lot to do with that. People, again, they're an easy target to make a cheap shot at. But then little things were happening, like uh, Titan Leeds, who took over the almanac from his father. Daniel's yeah, son. Exactly. Daniel's son, one of his many, I guess. Yes. <laughs> so he started in the publication of the almanac, putting the family crest on there. Well, the family crest has a wyvern, which is a dragon. Most dragons depicted mostly in England and Western Europe have, uh, dragons have four legs, the wyvern is depicted as having two. Well, right, and it coincides very much with the Jersey Devil. A wyvern, this is from Wikipedia, is a legendary creature with a dragon's head and wings, a reptilian body, two legs, and a tail. There's a sea-dwelling variant dubbed the sea wyvern. It has a fishtail in place of the barbed dragon's tail. Hmm. The wyvern in its various forms is important to heraldry, frequently appearing as a mascot of schools and athletic teams, chiefly in the United States and the United Kingdom. So there you go. It is part of the family crest. But isn't it interesting that the Leeds family crest has this creature on it that is nearly identical in its description to the Jersey Devil? It doesn't have the little tiny uh, Tyrannosaurus Rex arms, which yeah. the Jersey Devil supposedly had. That's what we're saying here it, when, when we're coming towards the end of this, is that 
there's so many descriptions you could say like, well, no, it had feathery wings. Like, these are more bat wings. You know, it's like, okay, but somebody saw feathery wings. Somebody saw it with scales. Somebody saw it with ram's horns. Somebody saw it with no horns at all. Somebody saw it with a horse's face or a goat's face. What about the guy, you were talking to me earlier about a guy on an ATV that was riding through the barren. That is a different story. That comes from Hunter Shea in the interview that he was giving about... Which he was talking to Jim Harold. Exactly. He was Jim, one of Jim Yes, shows. and, and okay. his cryptid report number seven, if you want to go check it out. Okay. Uh, you may have to uh, be part of the Paranormal Plus Club. He was talking about having to go do book signings in the New Jersey area, you know, not far from the Pine Barrens. Right. Because and to remind you guys, Hunter yeah. Shea is the author that writes the fictional versions it's a of dramatization. lots of books about exactly. all kinds of things, yes. including the right. Jersey Devil. Right, yeah. well, because he grew up in New York, real close there to the border. It's been in his family and his childhood lore all his life, so he's always heard about it. And they went to actually talk to a lot of people who lived there. And that's where he had these really interesting revelations, almost as many Bigfoot sightings. And so that's what happened. And he said, like, man, you think, like, maybe you talk to 100 people, two are going to have a good run in. You know, and he said, like, they talked to a lot of people. They spent a lot of time there talking to the locals. And he said, you would go do these book sightings. And he said, these uh, couple of uh, guys walked up they're in their younger, probably mid-20s, I guess. And he said this one guy was massive, you know, just like a linebacker type, just a big kid. A lot of people there, they said, we'll, we'll drive those side-by-sides or the forerunners or the ATV vehicles through the woods, through the Pine Barrens. There's a lot of trails there, and it's a good pastime activity for them. But this guy came up to him, and he said, like, he was almost shaking. He, you could see the fear, this big guy that looked like he should not be afraid of any human, mm-hmm. came up and told them the story that we were out at night driving our ATVs, and I'm, you know, we're doing like maybe 40 miles an hour zipping along one of these trails, and this tall figure that looks like it's hairy, black matted hair that looks maybe wet, this thing comes out of the woods onto the trail, standing next to the trail, and he said it, it was tall, six, seven, eight feet tall, nine feet, who knows, just not a human. Right. Massive. He said he, you know, he froze up so much that he just kept driving straight. He didn't hit him, but he came right by him, and the thing just kind of looked at him going by. But he said it was within feet of him off the trail. Yeah. And then again, that sounds more like Bigfoot. Didn't fly in and didn't do all these other right. things. Right, and, and here again, Shay's out trying to gather information about the Jersey Devil, and right. he's getting a Bigfoot story. He's getting a lot of or other cryptids. some other, of course, it's, matted black, wet black fur is a whole new... It's a variation. Yeah. Is it is it more skunk apey? Is it, you know, another green men have been seen in the area? Is that more of a lizard man? That's what Lord Coleman says. Is that is, is this more of a lizard man sighting, something green with scales? So all different kinds of cryptids are being seen. But the point here with uh, Hunter Shea is that he said, like, you know, you look at these guys and, and everybody says, well, he's just making that up. He wants to get his book signed and blah, 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 or be on a show. And when you go see these people or you talk to them and they're relating a story, it's like, unless they're the, an Oscar-winning actor, they're really shaken up. You can see the fear and when they and the retelling of it. This guy was scared, you know, yeah. a, a while later that it still freaked him out and uh, he and his friend. And they said, we're not making this up. We have no reason to. So anyway, believe it or not. But as we wrap this up, I'm dying to ask you, because, you know, we've discussed what we're going to talk about here, but I haven't directly asked you, what do you think's going on? Personally. Honestly, it's hard to say. Yeah, it I is. I mean, obviously yeah. it's hard to no, say. No, I know, Anyone yeah. would say that it's hard to say, but I, I guess for me, I like to think, oh, I'm impartial. I don't <laughs> I don't have any confirmation <laughs> bias. I just, I look at the facts. But you, what happens you do, is- I gotta say, you know what? You do pretty well. When you and I are, are going back and forth in our research, you're pretty open-minded. Well, I try to be, but I also find that whenever I finish a book, I'm like, oh yeah, this book's right. <laughs> That's the book. It's like when I come out of no, a movie, even if yeah. it's a bad movie, a lot of times yeah. for the first hour after I saw it, I'll be like, that was really good. And then like a couple hours later, I'm like, 
whoa, that stank. Yeah. You know, and <laughs> with the books, I'll read uh, The Jersey Devil. It's like, whoa, that's crazy. All that stuff is crazy. Yeah. And then I read Bill Sprouse's book. Oh, wait, it's all fake. Yeah. You know, because he, Sprouse was definitely related, I, right. I believe, is definitely yes, I, related. I believe so. All the way back to the Leeds right. family and the original Leeds family. And he did all this research, but he makes it clear pretty much in, in no uncertain terms that yeah. he doesn't necessarily believe in the actual jersey devil right part of the reason i know that is because i talked to him briefly on twitter yeah (laughs) and he told me that yes exactly you know we were talking about maybe doing an interview but anyway and when i finished his book i thought all right well it's interesting to see all of this stuff that we laid out here in this episode about all of these things it's easy to see how somebody could get strung up yes ideologically for behaving the way Daniel Leeds behaved and how we've all seen it. Growing up, you see people that they become pariahs because of their behavior. Right. And he made that bed and that's fine. But now it's this couple hundred year story associated with his family, which is kind of a bummer. But then again, maybe Titan shouldn't have put a wyvern on the (laughs) the family crest. Yeah. But at the root of it, I think... It comes down probably to my belief in other cryptids in general. That's where I was getting with this. Yeah. Yeah, And I I guess that I'm perplexed, honestly, by the Bonaparte account and Commodore Decatur's account. Yeah. He's, again, another very well-respected figure who had a genuine report on it. Yeah. And Bonaparte's really interesting, especially after the information you pointed out about him in part one, the extra research you had done on him. And it's like, no, this is a guy that people respect so much that when his house burnt down, they saved all his stuff and gave it back to him. Yeah, I mean, he was it's, a spendthrift and a dandy, but, you know, yeah. he was kind of a nice guy. I mean, he had a lot of other very well-respected people, you know, who travel in those circles of the time, come over to his house and hang out. He had the biggest library in the country. Yeah. And, yeah, you're right. Whatever you thought of him or, you know, he wasn't really out, out for power. He just kind of wanted to live a little bit lavishly and privately in a suburban setting and, and be the toast of the town, which he was. But he was also very well respected by his peers and the townsfolk. Again, like you said, they, they saved all of his stuff, didn't steal a penny. And he was very thankful that he, he let them know that. Right. I guess his account and Bonaparte's account and just... And also just, you know, just because you're related to Napoleon doesn't mean I should trust you. (laughs) Or not, yes. Or not. But I guess the hardest thing for me is the way this thing is theoretically shaped and how it operates. (laughs) I have a problem with that. It doesn't make sense. I I don't have a problem with that in the case of the Skinwalker Ranch because the witnesses have reported portals, for lack of a better word, and otherworldly stuff that seems to break all those rules. But also, this thing is absurd. It's absurd. Yeah, of course. The stuff that came, you know, out at Skinwalker Ranch is scary, but it's still, you know, basically bipedal or... This thing, it doesn't even seem like it should be able to stand up. So (laughs) there's a lot of... I guess for me, I go to this whole thing about the tulpas and the thought, the things that people create by believing in it. Is that a real idea? Right. I do believe in the idea more than this of Bigfoot and of... Oh, yeah. The Florida skunk ape. Right. A little shout Are out to Mr. Same? Hamill. Yeah. On Facebook. <laughs> who, is, who loves, he loves him some skunk ape. Desperately like wants us to do a yeah. skunk ape show, but uh, we're going to get back to something creepy for our next episode, but maybe it'll be our next cryptid. Well, but, that could be creepy, but yes, I see what you're saying. Yeah. So I just don't know what to believe. I no, am I entitled yeah. to believe that in the case of the Leeds story and the Leeds devil and the Jersey devil and all the lore surrounding it, I'm entitled to believe the proposition that Bill Sprouse has made in his book, The Domestic Life of the Jersey Devil. Yeah. Because it all makes sense to me. That makes sense to me. The politics of all that makes sense. A lot of that stuff is going on today in modern American politics. And there's a lot of parallels. Actually, it's kind of freaky. But I also think it's possible something was there 
before, and I think it's interesting. It's kind of like the episode of the X Files, which there was a Jersey Devil episode. Yes, that's right. We, we didn't mention that, but it was yeah. uh, episode number five, I believe. Yeah, that thing that the X Files did, where it worked the whole show to convince you that this thing wasn't actually happening, and, and then at the very end, you see it like walking down the street, and that's kind of <laughs> what I'm yeah. wondering here is if this is a folkloric tale that attached itself to something real. Yeah. Something real that really represents a very, very, very small percentage of the actual sightings associated with it after it became known as the Leeds Devil or the Jersey Devil, but that something real is there. Do I believe that when you have a place like the Pine Barrens, there's going to be creepy, weird stuff there? I do. And oh, by the way, we almost forgot. Before I finish here, because we said it earlier, and I don't want to cut it out, yeah. I would like to briefly play the sound of a sandhill crane. Ah, yes. Glad you remembered. We are now going to play for you the sound of a great horned owl. Right, so that's eerie, but it's not hard to tell what it is, especially if you know the area and the people that live around there. They're not going to be confused about hearing an owl, right? Yeah, these people are closer to the woods than native New Jerseyans, a lot of the urbanites there now. During that time, these people would have been a lot more familiar with the wildlife and the flora and the fauna. And I don't think that they'd be mistaking an owl for what they described. And we can only go off what they described, which was just a freakishly weird sound that didn't sound like any other animal. However, there is one other creature that a lot of our listeners have been trying to get us to talk about, and that is the Hypsignathus monstrosus. Oh, it's got monster in the title. I like that. Monstrosus. It's great. It's the African hammerhead bat. The first problem with this thing being that it lives in Africa. However, there were ships coming from Africa to the coast of Jersey pretty regularly back then. Uh -huh. uh, so it's entirely possible that one of these might have stowed away. However, they're so big, it's hard to imagine <laughs> uh. how it would have. But, you know, it looks a lot like what people describe, size notwithstanding. I mean, it doesn't have cloven feet, but still. No, well, it doesn't have a lot face, of this. You got to see, doesn't have the, a lot you gotta of see the schnoz on this thing. Yeah, the nose is ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> no, if you look at the face, and I could see where people say like elongated, like a horse. Well, to me, it looks a lot like a moose's face, which is funny. This, yeah, this big does, schnoz actually. on this thing. And it, it's kind of cute and kind of ugly at the same time and, and kind of freaky. But what's interesting about it is that yeah, some people have described the Jersey Devil as having kind of a horse-like face. Most describe it as having a goat-like face, which is different. I mean, yeah, you have that same kind of equine structure to the front of the nose bridge there, but different things and different from this bat. Here's the first thing, too, is you have to hear the sound it makes. So uh, we're going to go ahead and play a little bit of audio from the African hammerhead bat. So that really doesn't match what people were reporting as having heard out in the woods, which to me, again, it ranges from everything like that one guy saying it was like a, a record scratch, screeching kind of thing, to like a human-like shriek or scream. What people had reported hearing 
was much more aggressive and weird and shrill. I mean, that's a yeah, yes. that's a weird a weird animal noise, but nothing. Yeah, like, it sounds like an animal. I mean, for me, if I heard that, even though I would have no idea what it was and I wouldn't necessarily want to go visit with it, <laughs> it's not like the sinister, otherworldly sound that strikes fear. You know, it's just right. the other bigger problem is, and it's interesting because these things do live in swamps, but they live in on the lower west coast of Africa. And so even if one did come over, and their lifespan's about 30 years, and the largest ones, the largest wingspan is three feet, which is pretty impressive for the males. And the males are very different from the females. They're a lot bigger and different looking. The females don't have the big noses and everything. But the idea that one came over and then survived- A New Jersey uh, winter- a New Jersey winter yeah. is pretty implausible. For generations. Uh, yeah. yeah. But again, that creature, I got to say, for my money, aside from some of the other parts of the description, if you saw that and you were in the Americas and you'd never been to Africa and you saw that thing because it's so big and maybe you'd never even seen a bat before, you would have to be like, what in the world? It might be very confusing, but yeah. it's not got cloven feet and it's not four and five feet tall and it right. certainly doesn't breathe fire. So. No, or or with a forked <laughs> tail. But this is what happens. It's like the sandhill crane. You'll get a few things that match and people are like, that's it, right? We're done. We're done here. I, I don't want to think about this anymore. I don't want to think about this thing showing up in my backyard. This explains it, right? And it's like, well, it's close on a few things. 20, 30% of the things, but it's missing on a lot of other big ones, for my money anyway. And that one, this thing is huge. It's freaky. If you saw one flying around the lush, beautiful pine barrens, it would be weird. It would get your attention and uh, your imagination might start running wild. But it's not like a lot of the descriptions that people saw, and especially like the hoof prints in the snow, you know, the weird stuff. You say like, well, it was flapping and maybe the, the flapping wings. I mean, if you look at a uh, one of the Canadian geese try to take off in the snow, you get some weird prints because the, the wings and the feet are hitting. But it's not like hoof prints. And it doesn't make the sound and it's not the right size. And it's a tropical animal that I doubt would survive for generations because uh, then multiple ones are being, uh, had come across in ships and mate. Now that does happen. Here in uh, Southern California, we have a huge flock of green parrots that have escaped people's homes and they've actually reproduced. And if you go in the Venice, uh, Santa Monica area, they fly around in huge flocks and well, they're the really noisy. The ones in the San Fernando Valley, I thought that I had read that they actually got out from a uh, an old theme park that closed oh, down. <laughs> well, that may be one yeah. flock, yeah. They come to our yard. In fact, they were just there a few days ago. Yeah, so, they're noisy yeah. and screechy, but this environment is more natural for them. Right. It gets cold here. Maybe it gets down to, at the very lowest, maybe the upper 40s, an especially cold night, low to mid 50s. But it doesn't get down to New Jersey cold where you have snow on no. the ground. I don't think they yeah. would survive that. So No, I agree. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So to wrap up the bat discussion, a good candidate, but not hitting all the marks. You got the wings, it's leathery, but the skinny long crane legs with the horse hooves at the end and the long forked tail, all this other stuff, it's still missing the mark for me. And finally, for those of you who might think, I could never possibly mistake an animal for the sound of a human crying or a woman crying out in agony, which a lot of people reportedly have heard in the Pine Barrens, take a listen to this, and then I'll tell you what it is after we play it. <laughs> that... 
<laughs> was goats. Yeah. And there's a good chance a lot of you have heard that because that YouTube video that that came from yeah. has been viewed 37 million times. Oh, no. Screaming goats are all the rage now. They're I remember seeing it myself many years ago, yeah. actually. And I personally saw a goat do that and it freaked me out. You weren't in expecting Ireland. it? No, oh. I was driving down a road in uh, <laughs> County Cork. Yeah, right. And uh, they were by the side of the road and I, I was like, oh, look at that. And I was like, ah! And yeah. Well, that, hey, that, that was pretty and, good. I got to say. Yeah. On top of that, it had the vertical pupils. You know, it was. Oh, yes. Devil yeah. Goats. Devil goats for sure. Yeah. They're but, freaky uh, looking. They're very humorous animals. Yes. One thing I wanted to point out is that, yeah, animals can do a amazing things they can make human-like sounds the internet's full of that you know yes. dogs that say hello or, 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 yeah, or i yeah. love you and they do yeah. different you know when that's out in the woods and we're not saying it's feral monster goats that are out there screaming but what, also, I, what we locals are, yeah. know what that sounds like exactly yes that's my big point there yeah. is that if you're from the city you know you were raised in an urban environment all your life you never seen any animals not even in a petting zoo and you get out in the woods and it's freaky anyway and you hear that out in the Pine Barrens, yeah, that's going to scare the crap out of you. But people that claim that, you know, that quote we read before, it's just like, you can say that I'm a, I'm a whack job, but I know what I heard. And don't tell me what I heard. Well, yeah. And I guess my final conclusion is that I believe what Sprouse said about the Jersey Devil and the story of the Jersey Devil and the Leeds Devil, but I also believe that it's entirely possible, and I, I know I just said this, but I'm saying it yeah, again. Yeah. I also believe that it's entirely possible that there was something there that predated that story and actually served to inspire the revision of the story. That makes sense. Yeah. So how about this though? What do you think? <laughs> well, what do you think? Let's get off the goat chain here. Yeah. Let's go down the goat hole. Okay. So maybe a goat climbed up on, uh, you know, on the, the city councilman's roof and that's what he saw. That's why there's hoof prints up there. And then he heard the weird cry. Well, that makes sense except that he heard the flapping of wings and people saw this thing flying around, whatever it is. But counterpoint to that, some yeah. people will say that the footprints that the Sandhill Crane leaves look like hoof prints. Right, right. Well, when are we going to stop talking about no, that? No, I know. I don't no. believe the Sandhill Crane is the issue. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to the Mothman, I have a hard time. Well, especially the eyes. A little, I believe yeah. it a little more in this case. Their body types are similar. There's definitely no horse hoofs on it. Right, but, right, right. But it doesn't, I don't know. I don't know. It's just well, that's, I know. It's so, so bizarre. It, Exactly. So well, that's the wondrous part of life is that we have all these strange things. And thank goodness it hasn't hurt anybody. There's been never reports of that. Yes, maybe some livestock, but who knows? Maybe that was just wild animals of the area. But no one's reported this thing other than, yeah, harming people. It seems and to kind of fly And that's a good point. Away. By the way, yeah. the Sandhill Crane will hurt you. It, oh. <laughs> it will attack you. Yeah. Oh, no, birds are mean. Itself. Yeah, but no, these yeah. specifically are known for driving their beak through another animal's head through, oh my through the eyeball. Oh, geez, that's well, So that's if you ghastly. do see a sandhill crane, <laughs> yeah. avoid it. Yeah, don't go up and uh, try and get a picture of a mothman or, or something like that. But that's yeah. what's different. And if you ask me, it's like, I believe, yeah, the numbers point out that at least some people are going to misidentify something natural and normal that they mistake as something otherworldly because it's so freaky. Like we said, the hoot of an owl so deep and resonant, and it's freaky when you hear it. And I have heard it. I've seen an owl in Los Angeles here sitting on a fast food sign. I heard one in my backyard about three weeks ago. Yeah, exactly. And it's otherworldly, but it's not unnatural, which is what people are describing here. The Sandhill Crane, it, the screech is weird. But you know what? For one, they left the area in about the mid-1800s. So that wouldn't explain the flap of 1908, really. And also, it doesn't explain all the other things. If they're around a lot and people know they're down by the river, well, they're used to them. 
you know, so that's a, all the other things that uh, people have been explaining as far as encounters. It covers a small portion, and that's always my what I go to is like, well, it's this. It's a giant leathery fruit bat. Well, those are about eleven inches long. And yeah. you know, that was another thing that people saw, like, well, that's the camel, that's the horse head kind of shape. And yeah, I've seen bats with a horse head kind of shape, and of course they have the leathery wings and they're dark black and they're freaky, but it doesn't explain this. So it kind of falls short and just the otherworldly nature of it by people who aren't just trying to make a buck. I mean, there's the people with reputations at yeah. risk. Yeah. Coming out and saying that uh, they saw something. And, so and, what's uh, your belief then? Well, it goes into the larger arena. First, I want to say about, as far as reading a book, people out there, be careful when you read something. And that's what Scott's point is. Like you read it, it's like, you know, we saw that with Henry Plummer. They read one book like, well, there it is. You know what? He's totally innocent. Ugh, hold on. Not completely. That's one point of view. You have to get a bunch of different sources. And so when people say like, well, I just look at this one website for my news and information. It's like, you got to look at a bunch of different stuff. And you have to be open-minded because, yeah, that's human nature is that we believe things we read wholeheartedly. Until you read something else. Like, well, this makes more sense. That's the idea. Gather a bunch of different sources. Now, when it comes to cryptozoology, I think there are different levels. And it's not just one big umbrella. Like Mothman and what was going on there, yes, that's a creature. And it's crypto. <laughs> it's secret. It's unknown. There's so many other things going on with Mothman and Indrid Cold and this other stuff. And then when you talk about portals, and, you know, that is a big explainer about these cryptids. is like, why don't we ever see a carcass? Where are they coming from? How can they live 300 years out in the woods? There was one theory by somebody, I guess, who worked at the Smithsonian at the time of the 1908 flap that said, that, oh, it's a survivor, meaning that's a term in cryptozoology about pterodactyls surviving. Like, well, there's a clan of pterodactyls out there. Like, I don't think it's impossible, but very unlikely. And why haven't anybody tripped on them yet? Yeah. They're very well, popular. Especially now with the satellite, all the satellite imagery. Exactly. You, you, turn up. you think that some evidence would be found somewhere. Now, I do I believe that maybe something like that is happening in Loch Ness? Possibly. I tend to believe that more. If there is a creature down there, it could be prehistoric in nature. Like we talked about the coelacanth. Yes. It's a prehistoric fish with a, with a giant leg-like fins in the back. We think, oh, that disappeared millions of years ago. Nope. Somebody caught one. We just haven't seen it. Now that it's a different realm because it's the ocean. So a lot can be hidden down there, which is also very frightening. So what's different about this and a Mothman, because certainly even in Lauren Coleman's book, uh, they compare it as a cryptid, as a creature. And it's like, well, there's a different thing going on with Mothman because even with the flap that happened in Chicago a couple of weeks ago, and I believe sightings are still continuing currently, they got this overwhelming feeling of dread of just something bad. This is a bad omen. I don't know what's going on here. It, and that's different from being scared. It's like, yeah, you shouldn't see a flying hairy chimp. I mean, that's not part of our realm of, of what we experience, but that's fear. And so what people were seeing with the Jersey Devil was just was fear at a freaky creature. What the heck is that? That shouldn't be around, traipsing upon uh, people's uh, roofs and terrorizing their livestock. So that's a fear thing, but with these other kind of creatures, there's a feeling of um, sentience. There's emotion coming through, that it's, there's a communication that seems to be trying to happen. I didn't get that sense here. So if you ask me, it's like, yeah, I do believe that it's possible there's some freaky stuff out there. And, and if you ask for like a rational explanation, well, like where have they been living? What kind of cave? It's like, well, it may be another realm. What is this other realm, though, where these freaky things, if that's the way it is laid out, if that's how our universe works, there are parallel dimensions and portals to other worlds where things kind of drift in on different frequencies, 
what is this other place like where you have Mothmen and Jersey Devils and just these other weird cryptids running around? I guess Bigfoot. He's probably high up on the food chain there. He's kind of, <laughs> he's smart, you know. And where is this other realm and what is that like? So that opens up a whole like wondrous possibility. But yes, we get to a point where just so many people have seen something and we're serious about it. And I trust Native Americans because they know the land. They know the animals. They live amongst it. If you ask somebody from the city, it's like, well, you've been out of it for a while. You know, I'm not just talking about a person, but our society. We've gotten away from nature. And so not that you would be expecting something like that, but people who know the land and people who just live there all their lives have seen something strange. And so I don't doubt it's possible. What we've been trying to tell you about the legend of the Jersey Devil is that it's not just one origin story and it's, it's not just one version. There are many elements to the whole story that had a hand in making it into what it's become today. But what's really interesting to me, in my opinion, is that, yeah, you, you've got the Leeds Devil legend, but that's just the top layer. It doesn't really count for what's lying, I guess you could say flying, underneath that. And what's underneath that is that too many people to ignore have claimed to have witnessed some evidence of the Jersey Devil. Even way before the time of the Leeds family, since the days of the Native Americans first inhabited the region, people who lived there believe that there's something really out there. Well, that's going to wrap up our series on the Jersey Devil. We'll be back in two weeks with a story of an exorcism that will chill you to your core. Please remember to support our sponsors or visit patreon.com slash astonishinglegends to get cool swag and access to behind-the-scenes areas in the Astonishing Research Corps. Special thanks to John Bolin. Hi. Hi, I'm Steve Carafin. Hi. I'm Dan Burkholz. I'm Maureen Blasky, and I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees, and the theme is by Judson Crane. Sound design is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to The Ark and its lead researcher, Tess Feifel. But most importantly, we want to thank our listeners. You can find us online at astonishinglegends.com, as well as Facebook, Patreon, Twitter, and Instagram. Copyright Scott Philbrook and Forrest Burgess. Good night. <laughs>